Hey everyone, welcome to a special episode of Yoga Land. I am not your regular host. Instead, I am Jason Crandall. And what I'm bringing to you today is a special, big, long, comprehensive lecture on Patanjali. The way that we are doing this, the way that this podcast is organized is it's just putting together our three existing podcasts on Patanjali and adding to it a fourth podcast, which is about eight essential philosophical concepts to teach your beginners. I thought it might be really nice and useful for those of you that want to learn more about Patanjali, and especially those of you that are teaching yoga, to have all of these conversations in one place. One of the great things about the modern era is it's really easy to access good information. One of the downsides is it's very regularly well-organized and very ad hoc and random. So we had this idea of bundling all of these podcasts together so that you had them at your fingertips for one long, big listen. So if you're traveling and you want to listen, or you just can't sleep at night and you want to listen, or you want to kind of take these one at a time, we thought it'd be really nice for you to have all of these conversations in one place. I'm not going to do separate introductions for each one of the podcasts. I'm just going to tell you the four parts that are about to come up that are in consecutive order. So first, part one, we have the sutras, unpacking Purusha and Prakriti. Then the second podcast that's going to run commensurate is going to be the sutras, defining chitta, vrittis, and the gunas. The third part is the sutras, three three approaches to the eight limbs of yoga. And then finally, part four, teaching beginners, eight essential philosophical concepts to teach beginners. It's really nice for me to provide all of this information to you because I spend so much time teaching asana, pranayama, meditation, and so forth. But it's really a genuine pleasure to share with you some of my study, some of my insight on the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali, and I hope you really enjoy it. For those of you that want to learn more and are inspired and want to take a deeper dive, focusing on Patanjali is the philosophical centerpiece of upcoming Module 2. So for those of you interested, this is a 100-hour online training course We have six weeks of live calls, live Zoom calls, plus tons of really amazing video recorded content. I'm super excited to launch it. Our first episode or our first live call is July 22nd. And if you want to learn more, you can go to Jason Crandall, uh, jasonyoga.com backslash 300. Okay. Or you can just go to the show notes on this page. So without any further ado, please enjoy the conversations. Take care. Welcome back, Jason. Thanks for having me again. Nice to have you. As always. Yeah. I mean, as always, it's nice for me to, I didn't mean to be like, it's always nice for you to have me. Yeah. I mean, it's always nice to be here. I get it. I get it. In our home. (laughs) Looking at each other. Yes. As we usually do. Always. So we are going to talk today about Patanjali. I feel like in part, this is a conversation and an episode that people have been asking me to do for 
five years since I started the podcast. Way to be withholding. I know. I'm glad to finally deliver this to Well, we're going to do a series on Patanjali. Okay. Yeah, because Patanjali can only be done in proper context in a series. Okay. Yeah. So this is part one. Part one. And today we are going to talk about Purusha and Prakriti. Yeah. Yes. The easy stuff. I know, exactly. I'm like, so where do we begin? <laughs> well, here's where I want to begin, which is maybe this is my process of unpigeonholing myself from being an asana teacher. Yes. And I think, you know, like I love teaching postures. I like the body. I like how it works. I like technique. I love to grow and learn and iterate and incorporate different modalities and all sorts of things. But to me, at yoga's core is not down dog. At yoga's core is the process of self-observation, self-regulation, and transcendence. Like those are the key components of this living tradition. And so it's nice to have an environment where we get to talk about some of more of the metaphysical and conceptual layers that underpin Patanjali's worldview. Yeah. So the worldview of Patanjali, if you had to classify it, is it, is it Sankhya? The metaphysics of Sankhya form the infrastructure of Patanjali. Okay. okay. Right? So this is, I think, the first thing to remember, which I think most of us know, but hey, we, we're, we're all learning all the time anyways, which is that Patanjali is not really credited as being an original thinker as such. Right. Right? So <laughs> Patanjali's gift is in his compilation and his organization, and the skill with which he borrowed from existing homogenous, not homogenous, heterogeneous communities and cultures and belief systems. But at the core of Patanjali's worldview, his metaphysics, his cosmology, is the Sankhya school. And the Sankhya school really wasn't in Patanjali's era a separate school. So it wasn't in that era like there were hard, clearly defined schools of this and that. But the Sankhya school or the Sankhya methodology or belief system means enumeration, to enumerate, to list, mm -hmm. right? And so the underlying belief system within Sankhya, like Yana Yoga, Sankhya and Yana Yoga are virtually identical okay. in that the pathway of liberation is through cognitively organizing and listing all of the components of self and the universe. So it's the process of organizing and listing the different layers of who one is. And through that organization, through that listing, achieving liberation. Mm -hmm. So is the listing... Is that the Yoga Sutra? Like the listing that Patanjali did? Patanjali incorporates many of the Sankhya techniques of enumeration. Okay. Right? Okay. So we see that in Patanjali, right? Patanjali was an organizer and a list maker, but he talks about the five yamas, the five niyamas, the eight limb path. Right, right, right. The klista and aklista vrittis, the three gunas. And one of the things you'll see in Patanjali often is that there's a category that is introduced 
all of the elements of that category are introduced in a sutra. And then the following sutras unpack that original list. Right. Right. So you have the five yamas are introduced and then ensuing sutras enumerate or go into greater detail and list each one of those yamas that was originally listed. But I think I think more important in terms of understanding Patanjali's belief system and his relationship to the Sankhya school is not so much his process whereby he listed things, but it's the assumptions that he put into the equation, right? Patanjali presents a model. The eight limbs are a model. They're, they're a structure. Mm-hmm. But all models have inputs, right? So the inputs in Patanjali's model are largely formed from his belief in a dualistic worldview that comes from Sankhya, that all things are comprised of two separate things going by the names of Purusha and Prakriti. Right. Okay. So talk about how um, Patanjali defines Purusha and Prakriti. So this is interesting about Patanjali, which is he doesn't define Purusha. He doesn't define Prakriti, not directly. So one of the things to know about Patanjali is the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali assumes existing knowledge. It is not a beginner's text. It's not a householder's text. It was like everything of the era written for an unbelievably small and vetted segment of the population. Okay. So this wasn't a particularly inclusive process. Mm -hmm. The sutra, according to Patanjali, is it presumes that the student has an existing knowledge and an existing belief system that is commensurate with Sankhya. So the nature of Purusha and Prakriti are implied. So he doesn't spell them out, right? He doesn't kind of unpack it like you would unpack it for a beginner. Mm-hmm. He doesn't unpack the metaphysics. He The metaphysics are implied. Mm-hmm. And this is the reason that, you know, we're all so fortunate to have real historical scholars and right. commentarians mm-hmm. right. because looking at Patanjali's sutra out of context and without original commentary it's it's fairly impenetrable. Right, right, right. So it's kind of like it's kind of like presenter's notes. Like if you found if you were at MIT, right, and you found like a lecturer's notes. Yeah. You you I don't know. I wouldn't I'd be like what's that? Yeah. I don't know any of this stuff. But if I was that professor, I would know, or if I was a high-level student of that professor, I would know. Right. So the nature of Patanjali's sutra doesn't start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. He's not like, okay, on the first day, you will learn (laughs) X, Y, and Z, and here are the inputs into the model. So the worldview of Purusha and Prakriti, although everything in Patanjali's writing ultimately hinges on the Sankhya dualistic belief system in which we are attempting to disentangle, to disunite Purusha and Prakriti, right? Everything in the sutra hinges on us understanding these inputs. Mm -hmm. He does not specifically speak to these inputs. Right. Okay. So slight tangent. Do you have, could you rank like your favorite three commentaries in order? 
Yeah, I could. So Edward Bryant is my favorite commentary. Edwin. Edwin. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that is my favorite about it is because he does a remarkable job of not doing just his original commentary. He commentates on five of the most original and important and influential commentaries. So he's in, so he's (laughs) commenting on the commentary. So he's aggregating the commentaries for us. And it's so amazing and so beautiful, right? Because it gives us this multi-layered approach. It's also important for me to recognize, like, I am a Westerner. I don't read Sanskrit. I can barely pronounce most words in Sanskrit. And so I'm not an original scholar. Like, right. I, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't have the ability. I can't read the original text. And so one of the nice things about Edwin Bryant is that because he can, because he's smarter. Yeah. So one of the beautiful things about it to me is it gives me a it gives me an access point to many of the original Indian commentaries. Right. And I can't read that content myself. You know, and I and I feel like I feel like that book is not only incredibly erudite, but it's intellectually very honest. Mm-hmm. I think a second one for me is just one of the original ones that I spent time with, which is difficult. It's academically difficult, but it's Garrick Forstein's. Like, I've always really appreciated Garrick Forstein's writing, even though at times it's not beach reading. Yeah, no. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's... And for me as someone that because of how my brain works, like I have a hard time reading for long increments. So I can only really work with either of those texts in about 30 to 40 minute increments before my brain just stops. Mm -hmm. But then my final one, which in some ways to me is the most practical and accessible and from the heart is the commentary in the back of the heart of yoga. I knew it. I was yeah. going to say Desika Char. Yeah, Desika Char. Desika Char. I mean, talk you. about, like, just talk about a person that can take these unbelievably, almost impenetrable concepts and make them practical. Because Patanjali is also not, it doesn't seem as if Patanjali is writing a text for you to simply ponder. It's not, he's not giving you an intellectual exercise. He's giving you a pathway of action. Patanjali is very action oriented, but the action is the action of meditation. It's really a treatise on meditation. So the thing I like about Desikachar is it isn't just this unbelievably astute academic intellectual fodder. It's like, oh, but now what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. You know? So the to me, the most academic, the most intellectually interesting, all the way to the most just useful. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I want to get back to, if we want to disentangle Purusha and Prakriti, you are going to have to define them at some point. So I don't know where you you want to identify this definition, sure. but you you that's what we've got to do at this point. Okay. 
A quick reminder, Patanjali did not invent yoga. Patanjali did not start yoga. Patanjali is not really even close to the roots of yoga. Patanjali is the root of classical yoga. Right. Right. But Patanjali had came after Upanishads came after the Vedas, right? So he's so much of the worldview that is presented prior to Patanjali in the broader yoga cultures and canon were monistic. Okay. So they were coming from uh, an Advaita world, not two, meaning all of the components of oneself and all of the components of the universe were ultimately the same thing. They were inextricably composed of the same essence. Mm -hmm. this, is not the, this is not the worldview of Patanjali. Mm -hmm. The worldview of Patanjali and the worldview of Sankhya is that everything is comprised of two separate components. Purusha really and Prakriti. Yeah. I think that this is skipped over a lot yeah. by modern yogis and yoga teachers. And I think that people may not know that this dualistic viewpoint within the many different streams of yoga is actually the outlier. It's the outlier. Okay. So that's the way Patanjali is an outlier, for sure. Which is just really interesting. It's interesting, but let's just, let's, let's face it for a moment, which is when we're talking about monism or when we're dealing with dualism, we're dealing with really subtle metaphysics. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. Like, I don't think that the essence, I don't think that this means that Patanjali was like, oh my God, I wanted everything to be separate. I thought he was this good guy and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. He still believes, hey, at the core of you is soul. Yeah. At the core of you is God. So you are comprised of both components. You are comprised of Purusha and Prakriti. So it's not like you're missing out. Okay. You know what I mean? So, so it's not, I don't think he's presenting us. I don't think, okay, because a lot of times we get into yoga and we're like, oh my God, I'm God. <laughs> no, it's more like everything is one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, right. That's right. the, right. that right. is what everybody, you know, so, that's. So I think a case can be made that Patanjali believes is this. Saying the it's just the, okay. the way that it's being categorized is that, yes, everything is one, but one takes on two different forms. Okay. And those two different forms are here's where Patanjali is a bit of a downer, okay? Is that he's not, he doesn't celebrate one of the components of self. He does not celebrate your property. So in this, so you can make a case that Patanjali thinks everyone is one in that everyone contains these two components, mm -hmm. right? So he's not really saying that you are just material, and that, that that which is divine is outside of you. Mm -hmm. He's saying you are material and that which is divine is at the core of who you are. It's just sort of covered. It's covered. Right. And so, that, so that's where Patanjali is not really much of a celebrator of certain components of self. So I don't think that he's a big downer in that he's saying you are just a material, material thing in that like, the divine is outside of you and outside of your grasp. Mm -hmm. Where he becomes the downer is the messaging of your Prakriti. So let's get back to yeah. those two components, yeah, Prusha yeah. and Prakriti, mm -hmm. okay? So let's start with Prakriti. Prakriti is 
all material things and material processes, okay, that exist within the self and outside of the self, okay? So all material processes. Now, here's where this gets a little bit complicated because oftentimes in like more of a Western empirical philosophical worldview, the distinct there's a distinction between mind and matter. Mind is the contents or the rumination of your brain or the inner narrator. And then materials are physical artifacts. But in Prakriti, there isn't a distinction between, it's a very different distinction. There is not a distinction between mind and matter because mind is considered matter. So all thoughts, all sensations, all feelings, all emotions, all of your truths, all of your deepest wishes and dreams and hopes and fears, those are all prakriti. Those are considered to be as material Mm -hmm. as the cup in your hand, Mm -hmm. as material as the microphone that we're using, as material as the table that we're using. They're not really seen as significantly different. Mm -hmm. So the things that we identify with that make us human, right? Our feelings, our passions, our beliefs, our care for one another, our care for ourselves, our love of art or music or social media, admiration, whatever it is, (laughs) right? Whatever it is, those are all Prakriti Mm -hmm. from this worldview. Right. Those are not celebrated things. They're just not. Mm -hmm. You would have to take the vast majority of Patanjali. You'd have to get rid of Patanjali's underlying worldview to think Patanjali was trying to help you just enjoy your life more. You would really have to get rid of like almost everything Mm -hmm. to think, oh, Patanjali just wants me to breathe deeper and be happier and be Mm -hmm. nicer and enjoy the journey. Definitely not. Mm -hmm. That, That didn't come from Patanjali. So Prakriti, again, everything that is nameable, everything that you can observe within the universe and within the self. Prakriti. Mm -hmm. Purusha becomes the thing that's very difficult to describe. Mm -hmm. Purusha is, we can think about it as that which animates all of those things, that which observes all of those things. You can think of Purusha as, I think the easiest way, I don't know how- Is it like the essence of life force? Yes, yeah, it's it's, yeah. it's the life force. It, you, that's what I was going to say is you can kind of think about Purusha is as the soul elements mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. The distinction being is that there aren't necessarily separate souls, mm-hmm. right? So I think that a lot of people feel, I, I don't know. I don't know if comfortable is the right word, but you know, if I were to say something about someone's soul, right? I don't, think that most people would be like, oh my God, he's a crazy person. I think even people like me that lean a little bit more toward the atheistic side Mm -hmm. still have a sense that there is a metaphysical component of self Mm -hmm. that is not as transient as our physical body is, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. However we define that. And it gets hard because that's when we're deep into metaphysics, Mm -hmm. right? 
But I think that most people are comfortable with the idea of soul, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So Purusha would be the infinite, innumerable amount of collective souls. Hmm. What about like, this is going to be this is definitely a tangent, but I'm just thinking like I have heard of Purusha. You know how there's a million different definitions for every Sanskrit word. Sure, yes. So like one of them. It's Sanskrit, by the sorry, way. There's sorry, no hard sorry, A's. Sorry. I'm terrible. Um, we had actually someone used to come to Yoga Journal and try to get us to pronounce things correctly. It's so and we still hard. never did it. We were I, like, like, I can't even pronounce Spanish right. I know. Well, you know, we just, yeah, it was really yeah. hard. So um, nature is one of the de- definitions I've read. When you, when you see just like the lists, but what I'm thinking of is like nature, the plants, the, the ground. It's all the, Prakriti. Is it? Okay. Of course. Okay. Everything that can be named or observed or listed is Prakriti. So the, the- Also, listeners, don't get mad at me. I'm the messenger here. <laughs> I'm not even telling you I buy into this worldview. No, yeah. Right? But it is the worldview to understand if we want to understand Patanjali. Okay. Because, okay, so- what you could say is that which animates the life force. It's the living, it's the living component mm-hmm. of self. Mm-hmm. It is, I, I think it's, I don't think that we can say it's the energy. No. It's but I think it's almost, but we're getting closer. Okay. We're getting closer. The nice thing too is we are not the only ones to struggle with putting words to Purusha. One of the ways that Purusha is often referred to is that which cannot be named. Purusha is, hmm. you cannot be mad at me. <laughs> this is how we talk to our daughter all the time. <laughs> okay. Listener, you cannot be mad at me. Okay. You cannot be mad. At- Actually, you can have your feeling. You can have your property. Yeah, you can, yes. You, you can, can totally have your, have your property. You just can't lash out. That's actually what we say at Sophia. Um, One of the primary interpretations of Purusha is the man. The man that inhabits the city. Hmm. And so there is this idea. The man. The yeah, man, that is right? really dated. Right? That's dated. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. But we're dealing with something that's very old. Yeah. But if you think about it, right? So let's let's get rid of the man. Let's be like historically incorrect to make sure no one gets mad. But you can kind of think about it. If you think about it as that which inhabits the city, mm-hmm. right? It's kind of like imagine the, the city – is our dog just came if you just heard um andrea startle if you want a, a moment of levity i saw it happening i didn't know that you didn't see it happening. I saw, i'm on my second cup of coffee so our dog our dog came in and andrea didn't know it put her nose on my and backside she, and she just sniffed her bottom anyway. and andrea almost had a heart attack but think about okay so 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 if you want to get if you want to get rid of the the gender reference the gender reference mm-hmm. although that's what it Purusha actually means but if we want to get rid of that Think about it as that which inhabits the city. It's the essence of the thing. Hmm. It's okay. the essence of the thing. It's not the material of the thing. So it's not your thoughts. It's not your feelings. It's that which animates thought and feeling. Um, it's the soul element. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Patanjali doesn't talk much. In fact, Patanjali doesn't talk at all about how Prakriti and Purusha have become so intertwined. But it is clear through historical contextualization that the essence of Patanjali's work is 
to disentangle these two elements of self so that your prakriti is no longer discoloring your purusha. So another way of saying it is all of the things that you think and feel and touch and smell and interact with are considered to be material processes that inhibit your ability to see the true self, Purusha. Mm -hmm. Meaning you only see your internal machinations. You do not see the soulful truth at the center of all those things. Mm -hmm. You see the impressions. You mm -hmm. see the samskaras. You see your that everything you see and you experience, you do throw you do so through a filter. Mm -hmm. And Patanjali is trying to give us a path to remove those filters so that we see that soulful element that is at the core of ourself clearly. Mm -hmm. That's great. I think that's such a great encapsulation. Can I say one more thing? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot of times, especially a lot of the original commentators talk about a crystal. And a crystal reflects whatever's in front of it, mm -hmm. right? So it is believed that the core of the self, and this is where we're going to have in future podcasts, we have to talk about chitta, mm -hmm. we have to talk about the gunas, we have to talk about the kleshas, because this is all really interesting stuff, right? Look, where does the eight-limb path actually occur in Patanjali's work? In the middle. Yeah. In the middle. Pretty far along. Pretty far along, mm -hmm. It's not like... Here's how I'm no, introducing this. No, yeah. no. And remember, Patanjali's work doesn't start at the beginning. It presumes that the student is already a scholar of Sunkin metaphysics. It presumes that. So the path that we learn, this Patanjali eight limbs, yama niyama, it's very valuable. Whatever context you learn it in, it's still helpful. But... It can be very out of context if we don't really know what that path in Patanjali's interpretation is for. And that pathway that Patanjali is presenting us through the eight limbs is a pathway to disentangle Purusha and Prakriti, to disunite them, mm -hmm. to essentially quell all of the movements of our psyche in order to see the self clearly. So this gets back to that crystal, right? So the belief is that the center core of self is like pure crystal. And that pure crystal can only reflect what is surrounding it. And so if what is surrounding it is moving, if it's, it has a vritti, if it has a wave, if it has humanness, the stuff that we identify as humanness, then we don't actually see that crystal purely. We see the fluctuations. Mm -hmm. I think you just kind of beautifully set us up for understanding why the eight limbs progress the way they do, right? Because it, it really, well, I don't know. In my own personal experience, it isn't until you until I ever experienced kind of deep meditation that I could even begin to glimpse that disentanglement, right? Yeah. It's, it's not until you can literally like calm your body enough, still your senses enough, be able to sit long enough 
to be with yourself long enough that it then starts to kind of blossom and appear. And also that these start to identify less with all the material aspects of yourself and others and the world around you. We are going to have a conversation or two where we get into the limbs, but let's do it briefly now. Okay. Right. Let's do it really, really briefly now. And maybe that will be it for this round. Oh, can I just say one more thing? It, I can't stop thinking of the, oh, it's going to bother you so much. The police song, Spirits in the Material World. So I have this thing where I don't like Sting's voice. I know. And I know that this is like, because I'm a fan of like first wave and second that wave ska. Of, of music, yeah. Sting, I mean, the police weren't really that, but like, theoretically, I should... Yeah, they weren't. At very least, I should theoretically, at very least, appreciate the police. Yeah. You don't appreciate the police at all. No, I appreciate the police. I mean, we're talking about the musical band here. Yeah. We're making no commentary. (laughs) We're making no commentary one way or another. Yeah, we're making no way. And they're like a sting. Oh, my gosh. The police are making a sting. (laughs) We're making no commentary for positive (laughs) or negative about the police. Oh, God. Okay, we're talking about a musical band Mm -hmm. that I theoretically should appreciate. And I guess I do appreciate them, but I just, there's something about Sting's voice. I'm not saying it's a bad voice. I'm saying I don't like it. It's just not a fit. But Sting, if you're, if you're, you know, he's one of our big listeners. Oh yeah, I wish. Oh my gosh. I don't. I don't, I don't, don't, don't wish he didn't. That. Anyway, can we just get back to spirits in the material world? It's it's very applicable to this discussion. So. What we have to see is we have to see things in their context, right? So it's it's like this, right? If I, it's, I, I think about it always, right? I always think of like a sports metaphor, right? If I walked in and I looked at a game and it was a baseball game and it was in the sixth inning and it was three to four, I can't assume that the game started as three to four. I cannot assume that the game ended three to four. Mm -hmm. I can only assume right now in this moment, it's three to four. So it's the same thing when we, when we look at the Yamas or the Niyamas, if you look at them out of context, they can mean a lot of different things. If you look at them in context, they mean fewer things. They're more populated. Now we'll pause here, especially when it comes to the Yamas and the Niyamas. I think that taking a modern interpretation to what yamas and niyamas mean, I think that's totally reasonable in the same way that like I can appreciate an artist without knowing what the artist's intent was. I can appreciate the lyrics of a song, even if the lyrics of the song don't mean to me what they meant to the author, mm-hmm. right? I can wax on about the yamas or the niyamas, even if they aren't in context, but if we look at the yamas, the niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, dharana, dhyana, samadhi in context, I think the best way to look at them is concentric circles. Hmm. Remember that Patanjali is looking to decrease the activity of prakriti. He's looking at decreasing the chitta or the waves or the activity of mind. And when he says mind, psyche, and psyche is embodied. 
So he's looking to decrease activity from the gross to the subtle so that you no longer perceive the thoughts and the feelings. You only perceive the crystalline center of the self. And in order to do that, he provides a method by which you, like concentric circles, are going from regulating the most gross component of self to the most subtle element right. of self, right? So let's look at it just really quick. Yamas, the observations, right? So yamas, yamas restraints, right? So these really govern or identify the way in which we interact with other people. Mm -hmm. Niyama, the observations, the basic internal practices that we endeavor. Mm -hmm. Asana, to sit down and be still. Pranayama, to cut off the flow of breathing. So I know there's like no one wants to be like pranayama means to cut off the flow of breathing. Pranayama means to restrain the movement of breath. And the majority of the teaching in that world was about making the breath smaller and about reducing its volume. Okay. So you've governed your engagement or you've, you have put a restraint on the way in which you interact with the world. You have engaged in specific practices, yama and niyama. Asana, you've sat down to make your physical body still. Pranayama, you are making your breath more still. Pratyahara, you are disuniting, disuniting your experience of the sensory world, right? You're regulating what your sensory organs take in. Dharana, you're focusing your mind on a single concept or point. Dhyana, you are completely immersed in that point. Samadhi, that point at which all of those previous steps fall away. So you've gone from this place clearly of regulating the gross to the subtle. You're decreasing the activity or you're decreasing the movements of self from the gross to the subtle, you are slowly but surely limiting or reducing your prakriti, your material processes in order to observe undiluted that crystalline centerpiece of self, that purusha or that soul element. So you're regulating all of the more like day-to-day -day human elements to have a direct experience of soul element. It's pretty clear. Yeah. It's pretty clear. And that is an important and actionable, but somewhat small component of Patanjali. Not small component of Patanjali. I shouldn't say that. Everything kind of hinges on the eight limbs and doing those things. But we want to understand those inputs going into it. Yeah. Great. That voice tells me we're done. To be continued. All right. Next conversation. Thanks so much, Jason. You're welcome. Okay, so then let's get started on today's topic. So yeah. should we start with chitta? We should start with chitta. Okay. Because chitta is discussed early in Patanjali. Patanjali is making a statement 
very early on. He's saying what yoga is, and he's saying it is the fluctuations of the movements of the mind. Mm -hmm. It's the fluctuations of our psyche and our soma. So chitta, chitta vritti narodaha, is a pretty important concept to break down. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really beautiful because chitta, we can first think about chitta as our psyche. So this is where Patanjali is describing psychology. Hmm. He's providing us with a formula for what the psyche contains and what affects the psyche. So when he's talking about chitta, he's talking about our mind state, also including our sensory state. So our mind slash sensory system is chitta. And then vritti is that which makes those things active. Or it's the states in which we find those things. Mm. So it's really important to, to unpack chitta and vrittis in order to get a deeper insight into Patanjali. So Patanjali essentially cont contends that in the last episode, I talked about concentric rings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to do the same because this is really how Patanjali lays out chitta, is that we can think about it as concentric rings that form our psyche. So at the innermost core of self is Purusha. Encircling that, Prakriti. A form of Prakriti is Chitta. Hmm. So our mind state is a form of Prakriti. So there are three components, according to Patanjali, of Chitta. There's buddhi, there's ahamkara, and there's manas. You can imagine that Patanjali is laying out this worldview where Purusha is the innermost core of self, but chitta encircles it. Well, I have a graphic for this that we'll that we'll put up. And I won't I won't make the joke about I want ten cents for, for well, it. we never even put up that graphic. Oh, so yeah. it'll be good. To, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, to do yeah, that yeah, one okay. this time. <laughs> okay. It's because no one sent me their dime. <laughs> you remember when you has to, had to have um, change for the telephone? Yeah, of course I do. Of course you do. Okay, so remember when you used to go up to the payphone and check for change? Uh huh. Constantly. Yeah. Yes. This is before we're you know ten years old. No. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we never. This is not last week. <laughs> I mean, I've had some tough times paying the rent as a yoga teacher. You weren't but looking for dimes. No, no. You keep your dimes. Invest them. Venmo me. Okay, so. Purusha, the centermost core of self. Chitta encircles this, that central most core of self. Chitta is our psyche. There are three components of right. it. Okay. Buddhi is the component that is most refined. It's the part of our psyche that is most refined. And in those concentric rings, it's closest to our true self. So buddhi is largely defined as the component of mind that's governed by discernment. So high-level knowledge, high-level discernment, a sense of right and wrong, right? A sense of deep knowledge. So buddhi is, we can think about it as the discriminating, discerning, deeply intellectual component of self. Component of mind. Okay. Okay. Just so making sense so far. Yep. Okay. So encircling that, 
another component of chitta, remember there's three components, is ahamkara, which literally translates to the eye maker. Okay? So the ahamkara is, is our sense of self. It's our sense of I amness. Hmm. It's our sense of I am sitting here. I am six feet tall. I have skinny calves and a space between my teeth. I am a good yoga teacher, blah, 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 blah. It's the sense of I am feeling. It's all of that intellectual and visceral sense of self. And this, we want to understand, this is an integral component of yoga psychology. We are not trying to get rid of this. Okay. This is kind of like one of the most common misunderstandings. Okay. But we'll, we'll, if you want to return to that, we'll, we'll get yeah, to that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. we have the components of our psyche. So far, we have the discerning sense of who of knowledge. Mm-hmm. We have the sense of self. And then the outermost layer, the part of our psyche that is most frequently in direct contact with the world outside of us, that is manas, which is roughly translated to mind. Mm-hmm. So manas, you can think about it as the the sensory processing component of self. Hmm. It's the part of mind that is taking in information from the world around us and then and then forming thoughts from it, right? So when I am looking out our backyard, I am seeing that it's bright. There's flowers. I see a bee. There's sun. So manas is the part of the psyche that is literally just, it's it's computational. Hmm. It's taking in the sensory- Processing. Yeah, it's taking in the, the, sense, the sensory world around us, and it is processing those senses into the sense of I amness, mm-hmm. and then ultimately into that higher sense of knowledge and discernment. Okay. Right? So that's chitta, right? That's chitta as well as we can think about it or describe it in short form. And chitta, we want to understand again, is our psyche, but it's also our soma. So it's our mind slash body. There isn't really a distinction in this world between mind body. It's mind body, mm-hmm. not mind and body. It's mind body. Mm-hmm. So psyche is chitta. It is comprised of those layers, right? Mm-hmm. And so Patanjali, we wanted to take a, remem- a, a reminder. And Patanjali wants those layers to cease, to stop moving, to stop fluctuating. The reason that he wants those things to stop fluctuating is because the activity of those things, he believes, obscures our ability to perceive the deepest core of self, Purusha. Got it. Yeah. So talk to me about how you're interpreting vritti. Vritti is not too difficult to interpret. You know, vritti is like, there There are certain things, and a lot of Patanjali is pretty opaque. And thank God, whatever your personal God is, whether you have one or don't one, have one, right? Thank God that there are so many commentators that precede us, mm-hmm. right? Vrittis are pretty straightforward. So- you can think about this. Any activity of mind whatsoever is a vritti. 
Avritti is a movement. It's a fluctuation. It's an electrical current. Avritti essentially means that chitta is engaged with something, that any of those layers of our psyche are active. If, if the mind is doing anything, if there's any pulse whatsoever up there, that is a vritti. Patanjali wants these vrittis to stop. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, we might ask ourselves how plausible this is, mm -hmm. right? Patanjali's not asking us to do something simple. You know what I mean? Like, he's not a weekender. Okay? Fair enough. We can take Patanjali as a contemporary householder without a doubt. But that wasn't the original context. Mm -hmm. It's unlikely that was the original context. Let me put it that way. It's unlikely that was the original context. Given all of the kind of surrounding concepts that he's laid out. He says that there are five vrittis. So essentially he says, your mind, your psyche, your chitta is going to be involved in five things at any given time. One of five things or multiples of five things. And the first thing that he says is right cognition, meaning one of the five things that your mind will be doing is understanding something correctly, like whatever that is, right? Like understanding something correctly. The second mind state is misunderstanding something. So inaccurate cognition, mm -hmm. right? And if we just kind of take a step back, our mind gets stuff wrong all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. Sure. Like every single day, our mind is getting something wrong, mm -hmm. right? what we thought we knew about ourselves, or how we thought someone like, oh, I was talking to someone and they were kind of short with me. I think they're upset with me because six months ago I didn't respond to their text. They were just having a bad day, mm -hmm. right? So th these first two things that he's describing are essentially cognition. The mind is understanding something correctly or the mind is understanding something incorrectly. The next thing he lays out, which of course is a massive category is imagination. Right? right? It's imagination. <laughs> yeah. That the mind is involved in some discursive, imaginative make-believe, right? right? And, and that's, that's the majority of what the mind does is produce make-believe. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that sounds dismissive because, look, I think the, the human mind is beautiful and amazing. I like the human mind a lot more than Patanjali seems to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I really do. Like, yeah. I... I kind of like Prakriti and I like the activities of Chitta. Yeah. So I'm a pretty big component. I think the human mind is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty clear that it spends a lot of time in imagination land. Yeah, definitely. Right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's daydreaming, whether it's yeah, like futurizing, planning, yeah. planning yeah. analysis, like all of these things, like, okay. When I get here, then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to mm -hmm. feel this way, and then I'm going to have this food. I'm going to totally hydrate, yeah. and then I'm going to relax. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then what is most of that? Misapprehension. Yeah. Almost all of our imaginations become inaccurate cognition. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. So then the fourth one that he brings up is sleep, right? Nidra. Oh. So nidra is considered an activity. It, it's a vritti. Right? So it's a vritti. And that vritti is, an, is activating chitta. So yoga nidra is awesome. Mm -hmm. It's a vritti. 
It is a vritti that is is very sattvic. So we'll get to the gunas soon, right? And it is a very good tool that ultimately, from Patanjali's perspective, likely needs to be dispensed with, right? Because he doesn't favor a vritti. He wants vrittis to stop. Yeah, okay. Okay? Hmm. So that said, he's presenting a pathway. So it's not like you can do everything at once, right? It's not like all of a sudden everything just suspends itself. Okay. So let's just stay, let's just stay with this component first. Okay. Okay. Let's just kind of stay with the, because there's a lot of cross usage of language, right? Yoga language has been borrowed and repurposed and repackaged from time immemorial. This is not a particularly new phenomenon. So let's just think, let's just stay in the Vritti's category of, now we have four. Correct cognition, incorrect cognition, imagination, sleep, mm-hmm. nidra. Fifth, memory, mm, smriti. Of course. Right? right. Memory. Mm-hmm. Like the mind is involved in a memory. Like yeah. those are the things that it does. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing, actually. Yeah. Right. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty amazing list, right? And again, we this is where we where I think we can appreciate Patanjali so much. Whether you completely buy into all of the inputs and the desired outcomes or not, we can appreciate it. Look, there's a lot of things in my life that I don't agree with or enjoy, but I appreciate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where I see like, oh my God, there's so much skill and depth in, in this kind of thing, but I'm just not into it. Right. Right. No, but to, to break it down that thoroughly, but in such a concise way is is definitely impressive. Because yeah, that, that does feel very all-encompassing and yet simple, like yeah. easy to remember. Well, and- it's, it's, it's the hallmark of an actual, Patanjali is not the quote unquote father of yoga. He's not the founder of yoga. He's thousands of years into like, steps into a world that has had the concept of yoga for at least two plus thousand years. Mm-hmm. He least. could be a she. He could be have an observed, she could be have, have been observing the Brahmins, right? Mm, Maybe. No. I mean I think not. I think I think we're getting into imagination. Okay. <laughs> Just as you were like saying, he, he, he. Just but maybe there's, realize, there's a like, novel in there. Yeah, exactly. There's a novel in yeah, there. Yeah, I want to uh, just say one more thing, which is that it, it's all, I think one of the other things that stands out to me that is just so impressive is thinking about Nidra as a Ritti, because it totally makes sense. And now we all we all live in this time when we measure brain waves during sleep and we know about all these this yeah. activity during sleep. It's quite and, active. Right, exactly. And of course, like, Patanjali had the experience of sleep, right? right so he knew that there were this was happening. But it's still pretty impressive to think like that they didn't necessarily have the same tools to measure what was happening, and yet they knew it was happening. Big time. Yeah. I, I think just as a point of personal reflection, too, Patanjali is asking us to stop these things. But in, in a modern setting, I think we love to ruminate on things and just like get to know ourselves through different models, right? Mm -hmm. So taking a moment to do that, if I consider the vrittis and I consider where I spend most of my time, I can tell you where I do not spend much time is memory. I know you're good about that. 
Well, good about that or not good about that, like I am almost never concerned with what happened a second ago. Yeah. It's just, it's it's over. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe it's, no, it's not over because karma exists and things, you know, there's causal well, relationships. Well, you hold on to things. I don't. And part of it is like, I don't have a good memory. I know you don't. So, well, you right, don't have a good working memory. Well, you fair You don't have enough. a good long-term memory. But I just, so I don't spend much time in the past. Some people do, you know? And then for me, I feel like I spend a lot of time in in imagination, but in the planning, futurizing, mentally organizing phase of imagination. Mm-hmm. Like that's where I spend a lot of my time. Mm-hmm. And I spend a lot of time getting things right and a lot of time getting things wrong. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like th- those feel to me like those are... I don't feel I don't spend like a particular amount of time in dream state. I don't spend a lot of time in memory. I spend the majority of my time in getting things right, getting things wrong, and the planning side of imagination. Of imagination. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. It's really I think it's really, really common. And my guess is that this is a very contemporary brain state because of the kind of variables that as a human, we have to work with. We have mm-hmm. to work with a lot of complexity and a lot of planning and a lot of futurizing. And planning and futurizing is pretty closely uh, aligned with anxiety. And we are kind of an anxiety-driven, stress-driven culture. So. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So Patanjali is also ultimately asking that those vrittis, those fluctuations, those any mind state whatsoever is a vritti. Any mind state whatsoever is a vritti. And he's asking for those to be restrained. Right. Or to be dampened or to be flatlined or to be muted. Or so those activities are producing. So those vrittis are what chitta tends to do. So, So the psyche tends to do those things. Right. So. By not doing those things, chitta, our psyche, is still, right? It's like a, it's like a body of water that's completely still. Mm-hmm. And when you have a body of water that's completely still, now you can see through it. But if there's activity, you can't see through it. When that body of water is completely still, you can see through it to what Patanjali perceives as the deepest core of self. Purusha. Mm-hmm. So we have no interest in the waves. There's no interest in the ocean. There's no interest in, in all of that surface level prakriti activity. It's all the same. One way or another, it's all the same, which is obscuring to the perception of our deepest core. And that's why it's a problem. That's why it needs to be stopped. Right. And that's why Patanjali is not asking us like the tantrikas do to like, you know, dance in the fields and celebrate this body of life. Right. That is so not what Patanjali is asking Dance us Dance in the fields. Uh-huh. Well, and well, that was the left-hand school. Anyway. I know. So, okay. So how do we, how do we connect the gunas to Chitta and Vritti? I kind of think about this, and this is a place where I am making a connection that I've not heard or seen in academic literature. So this is completely interpretive to me. 
when I think about the vrittis or those mind states, Patanjali doesn't seem to abs- to ascribe emotional or sensory qualities to them. It just kind of refers to them as mind states. Mm-hmm. Like they're activities of mind. They're things that mind does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it almost sounds like the mind does those things in a robotic, non-feeling way. Like, the, like he just doesn't ascribe right. a sense tone to them. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about sense tone is really the gunas. Mm-hmm. That's where he's talking. That's where he's talking about the sensory, energetic, emotional components, right? So when he's talking about gunas, he talks about three gunas, sattva, rajas, and tamas. The gunas are the constituents of nature, right? They're the components of nature. They are the three strands of the rope. Like, think about, uh, this is a way that it's often described, right? Think about a rope and think about a rope being comprised of three strands that are woven together. Mm -hmm. So that rope is existence and the strands that are woven together to produce that existence are tamas, rajas, and sattva. Mm -hmm. They're the elements that everything is comprised of, that all prakriti is comprised of. So everything within and everything without, except that divine core, that purusha, that soulful component. Tamas is described as heavy lethargic. I mean, there's just like, there's just like, so there's books, there's like describe. books and books <laughs> and books and books. Okay. About so this. Let's just like get to the heart of it, which is Tomas is kind of a lower, heavier, more inert mm-hmm. tone, mental, emotional, physical. It's a tone. Rajas is a higher frequency, greater stimulation, kind of more buzzy, more elevated tone, Mm -hmm. right? So emotional states according to that, sensory states according to that, mental states according to that. And then sattva is the middle. Sattva is steady. Sattva is closest to buddhi. It's closest to purusha. So Patanjali favors sattva. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways... The eight limbs that he brings out, the eight limbs that he establishes, and a lot of the purpose of the preparatory phases and the the early phase of meditation, dharana, is to just give us a more sattvic experience of prakriti, a more balanced, more regulated, more calm sense of self. I understand that at this time, this was not a householder's text, but I do wonder if there was any part of it that was like, we know not all of you are going to reach Samadhi. You're not all as awesome. (laughs) Right? But we can at least shoot for being more sattvic. I think what we can do is, obviously there are different texts, but we can refer to some of the poignant moments. There's a lot of them. In the Bhagavad Gita. And when Krishna is talking to Arjuna, he says, any step on this path is worth it. Mm -hmm. Any step on the path 
of your dharma is worth it even if you don't make it very far. Hmm. So the in the Bhagavad Gita, part of the I think the brilliance of the Bhagavad Gita that gets overlooked is the the way in which Krishna pr- provides a, various hierarchies of value. And essentially says, like, here's top level value. You live in accordance with Dharma no matter what. You don't want to kill your cousins. Bummer. No one wants to kill their cousins. It's kind of your job. Yeah. Time to do it. Do it. But then he layers in very several different things along the way, essentially saying, like, hey, even if you don't get to the pinnacle of the mountain, take a step. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a reasonable way to interface with Patanjali. Mm-hmm. And I think, to be honest, it's the useful way to interface with Patanjali. I think it's the modern way to interface with Patanjali. I think I've never met anyone in my entire life that actually completely wants what Patanjali sets out for. Hmm. Because to have what Patanjali sets out for, it's a full negation of all prakriti. Right. I don't think that people want to sign up for that. Yeah. And I think if they do, I don't know who they are. Right, exactly. You know what we I mean? We don't know them. We don't yeah. know them, they right? Might, yeah, I they think might exist, but we because don't Because I them. think you would I think you would have to be pretty much in a purely monastic setting. That's what I think too. You know? Yeah. So I, I think you would be you would be a monk and the world would not like you wouldn't be posting on Instagram. Right, right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just it just wouldn't happen because Patanjali is is there is no if, ands, or buts. Chitta Vritti Naroda. Yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of consciousness. He's saying yoga is a state in which you have no activity what so bleeping ever of anything that is prakritic what is prakritic you have no sense of body you have no sense of self you have no sense of mind you have no sense of mind state and then when you look at samadhi and all the different levels of samadhi he's clearly further reinforcing these variables so this is why you know when richard rosen not to misquote him but when richard was on your podcast years ago about Patanjali said something along the lines of Patanjali is not particularly affirming towards life and the human condition. Mm -hmm. It's not. Yeah. It's where Georg Feuerstein writes, what Patanjali is presenting us is a negation of every single thing that we know that we perceive that makes us human. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that this means in any way, like, okay, we'll throw throw Patanjali out. But I think that you're bringing up the key thing, which is like, well, can we take a little bit of it? Yeah. Can I have like Patanjali light? <laughs> and that's where ultimately I think we're going to get to, mm-hmm. right? And And that's where like, for those of us that are listening to a podcast, not sitting in a monastic order- mm-hmm. There's so much to take from this, but I think right. I also I mean, think it can still be sincere. Like I'm, yeah, hundred percent. It can still be sincere, and that you're, but you are going as far as you can go, and your and like according to you, like you said, according to your dharma and your karma and like who you are in the world. I, I just want to interject one quick thing, which is, have you heard Gary Craftsell tell tell the little anecdote of Yogi Rogi Bogi? <laughs> is that, sorry, I left. Is that a real? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. I shouldn't laugh. I will look it up. No, it's funny. I'll look it up okay. because I'm not going to tell it exactly right. But he, there's some anecdote where okay. 
someone is asked, you know, are you a yogi, a, a rogi, or a bogey? Meaning, like, are you a true yogi? Okay, yeah. Are yeah. you a rogue, or are you just bogus? Got it. Got and it. the answer is always bogey, mm. right? And and it's like not that you are insincere or that you are trying to put something on, but that you know you are not a pure yogi. Like, yeah. you know that that's not really attainable for you. And there is a reference to where he says that, so I'll try to find it. But I, I was listening to a podcast recently, and the guest just said, you know, every day I just try to be less wrong. Like, that's my goal. I just try to be less wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I and I really it's a res- good parenting goal. Too. Yeah, I I really respected that, right? And what we're doing by having these conversations, I think, also is helping to honor some of the traditions of the yoga practice because I don't know why. I literally don't know why, but I just feel like it's important to know that. I am borrowing from Patanjali and I don't know that I completely want the world that Patanjali is presenting. I don't know that I'm signing up for that. I really Mm -hmm. don't. But I still really intellectually enjoy it. I find it endlessly fascinating. I find it endlessly helpful. But it's almost like this recipe book where I don't know that I'm cooking with all the exact same ingredients, but I still think it's really worth it. You're not following the full French technique. I'm not following the full French technique, but I feel like it is my duty to understand that French technique. Mm -hmm. And it's my duty to understand the environment and the context and the historical the outlay that Patanjali presents us in the most deep and refined way and then choose to take it at its will or to take a slightly different interpretation of it. To me, knowing that that the way that I am living it is interpretive and a little bit different, to me, it's still, for me, I don't know why, but better than doing that without knowing that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. I- so so that's where, like, to me, that's to me, too, where I think it's such an important, so important to be a student of this work is to kind of then know a little bit more about, oh, well, I really am just a modern person that was born in 1974 and not in 200 BCE or CE, you know? Yeah. Anyways. Uh, yes. We're, yeah. we're, we're in agreement on that. Let me make this really quick connection again, okay. okay? So if you have questions, we can go from there, but maybe this is just a sum up, okay? So chitta. Chitta is our psyche. Our psyche is not just in our head. It's also our body. So chitta is psychosoma. Buddhi, our greatest, our sense of intellectual discernment. Ahamkara, our sense of self. Manas, the mind taking in information from the world around us and processing it, making a story. Vrittis. Vrittis are the activities of chitta, right? Vrittis, five components. Our mind is either in a process of like understanding something correctly 
understanding something incorrectly. In some state of imagination, in some state of sleep, or in some state of memory. Those vrittis in Patanjali's world don't seem to be given emotionality. They don't seem to be given tone. They don't seem to be, have like feeling states associated with them. Where we seem to get the feeling tone is in the way gunas are described. And those gunas, three of them, the three elements that underscore all prakriti, all everything except for Purusha. Tamas, a little bit heavier tone. Rajas, a little bit more high vibratory tone. And then Sattva, centered. Mm-hmm. Centered. And so Patanjali is trying to help us do things that access a Sattvic state because that Sattvic state is considered to be closest to our inner core of self. Mm-hmm. You can't access, I'm not saying this, in Patanjali's orchestration, you can't access the deepest core of yourself with a heavy, dense, lethargic tone. You can't access your deepest self with an overly high vibratory tone. Mm. You can only access that pure, undifferentiated component of self by being in the most grounded and equalized state, which is why Patanjali is asking us the whole time to, through our practices, create a state of equilibrium Mm -hmm. because that's sattvic. Can I tell you a funny story? Yes. When I was in my 200-hour training, Georg Verstein did our philosophy section. And when we got to the gunas, he described them. And then, and I completely in that, at that, just at that point in my life related to the Tomasic state, I just felt like I was just a big (laughs) depressed, like ball of inertia. And then he said, he like, he described all three. And then he said, what kind of student would you prefer? You, would you prefer, obviously you prefer a Sattvic student, but you have, if you have Rajasic student, Tamasic student, which, which student would you prefer? Always a Rajasic student. Of At course. least they have energy. I was like so ashamed. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. But I was also laughing to myself like, man, all my teachers must have hated me my whole yeah. life because it was so hard to get me going. But. So I want to say this. I think this is such a, an important point. And then uh, maybe we'll, we'll wrap this okay. up because I think this is about as much as we could take in any one yes. setting. Mm-hmm. Patanjali is an interventionist. Mm-hmm. Patanjali is a regulator. Patanjali doesn't stop at observation. Not at all. Patanjali is profoundly goal-oriented. Patanjali is not trying to just get you to know you as you currently are and like bask in that state. That might be a reasonable thing that someone chooses to do, but that is not Patanjali. That is antithetical to Patanjali from every interpretation. So Patanjali prefers a sattvic state. So we can do things where we're like, oh, you know, I'm just a little bit more tamasic of a person. Or I'm just a little bit more rajasic of a person. That's fine. Right. But the intention of Patanjali's work is not now to stop there. It's like, and so what? Right. What are you So now what are you Mm -hmm. going to do? Now here are the various methods to get you from a more tamasic state to a more sattvic state or from a more rajasic state to a more sattvic state. And sometimes people are going to hear that and say, well, that sounds judgmental. 
And it's kind of like, well, he's trying to he's trying to get you to to. Not if you're, I mean, I think you have to realize it's you're you're talking about constitution. You're not talking about personality. Yeah. Right. I think when people take things personally, it's like, but that's just my personality. It's like, no, we're talking about like your energetic constitution. Right. And that's too much sense of ahamkara, right? So, so if it's like, well, that's just who I am. Well, that's all. That's the ahamkara. Right. Coming to the fore. Digging its heels in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. So ego. Or the ahamkara is raw, man. It doesn't take much. It takes almost nothing in me for that component to just burst to the surface. <laughs> you know, that component of me for me is easily triggered, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a it's it's a component of me to always watch. Like, I have to always remember that when, when I am internally defending my state of being... Mm-hmm. It's not that that's always a wrong thing to do, but in Patanjali's landscape, that's like, oh, that is a component of my chitta that is raging. Yeah, it's not a wrong thing to do, but it is a thing to be have the ability to observe Yes, rather than react to. And that will take us into next week's episode. All right, I like it. Because next week, let's just, we'll just get into different models, different ways in which we can look at the eight limbs. Great. And I have three different models. We'll see how long it takes, but I have three different models of using the eight limbs method. Going from my, what I think is most historic and traditional to what is most actionable in a modern setting. Okay, great. All right. Well, so Jason's going, we're going to put that handout on the website, right? So you yeah. can go find that at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 230. And let us know how you are enjoying these episodes or not. Um, no, don't let us can... know if you're not. <laughs> Definitely let us know if you are enjoying yeah, them. But if you're not, just don't. Share them don't, and, don't tell and, me. and tell friends about them. And uh, you can always leave a rating or review on iTunes. That's helpful as well. If it's a five. And yeah, exactly. And if it's anything other than a five, start your own podcast. Do better. <laughs> Seriously. Do, do better. Okay. You're like, oh, they can't All do right, it. Um, All right, well, you, then you do it. All right, Ahamkara. Let's step back for a moment. That's my middle name. <laughs> Jason Ahamkara. That's your wrestling name. I think it should be your wrestling name. And with that, we shall bid you adieu. Until next week, enjoy your practice. We have Jason back with us today. Hi, Jason. Hello. We're going to talk about Patanjali again today. But first, I want to commend you on almost being finished with filming for Module 3. Can I take a moment? Okay. So I have now taught three, six, six 100-hour modules online. But I've refilmed every single one each time. Yeah, you have. I'm aware of that. Actually, I'm aware. I'm definitely aware of that. So this has been this has been a very intense thing. Mm. But you know what? 
Hmm. They've gotten better each time. I'm sure they have. They better when have. When you repeat something over yeah, and over, you better, better get better at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, speaking of which, quick plug. We have module three coming up soon. That's coming up in this month. Yeah, um, right? I believe that. It's the end of this month. Yes. So materials are available the end of this month, May 31st or 30th, whatever it is. And then our live calls are the first two weeks of June, the second two weeks of June. Yes. And then also I'm restarting module one in August. Yes. All that information is available. It's super awesome. It's really great to do online. I don't think you're missing anything. Like to do it online instead of live. Yeah. So if you're interested in those things, check them out. They're super great. People are really, really stoked. It's been a really amazing community. Chelsea left me a message the other day and said that she was getting feedback from the mentors that the students were feeling like having the mentoring groups really did give them a way to connect with other students. Not the way you do in person, but just it gave them those smaller cohorts have been really making people really happy. So yeah. That's good. Yeah. You know, okay. So two quick things, right? Which is when we shifted to making these online, my goal was not to replicate the live spirit experience online. It was to do it online in the best possible way to do it online, which means considering online teaching practices and educational practices, which are just really different than live ones. And I think that everything is as good, if not at times better, online, except peer-to-peer stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing that takes a hit. That's the thing that really takes a hit, to be honest. And so sorting this out over the course of the last year, we've had to figure out different ways to do this. And one of the ways to do this has been with mentors and small groups and breakout rooms. And so... I've approached this with a problem-solving mindset to figure out, okay, how do we take this content and how do we maximize it? And then when there's something that is falling a little flat, that's okay. How do we fix that? And so I think that that's been a really awesome thing. I'm yeah. happy. I'm super, super happy with it. I was really happy to hear that people were feeling just more connected. Because like you said, that's the hardest part about uh, not being in person. The other thing is, look, the online connection has some sustainability over time that in-person doesn't necessarily. Because the thing is, for the majority of my trainings, most of the people don't live in that region. Yeah, that's true. You know, so there's so many people that come in and we get to know each other, but for a short period of time, Mm -hmm. 12-day increments. And so doing this online, you don't have those 12-day increments, but you get to meet a community online. Yes. And then when you graduate, I have those ongoing monthly mentor calls and so forth. And one of the things that we've talked a lot about, Patanjali. Yes. Let's get into that. So we have had a couple of conversations recently in which we unpacked some of the metaphysical infrastructure that Patanjali leans on and many of the different concepts that Patanjali leans on. But what we haven't unpacked is his plan, right? We haven't unpacked the eight-limb process or the Ashtanga-limbed method. 
not to be confused with Patabi Joyce taking that name, right? Right. But we haven't just kind of gone through the step-by-step model. And what I want to do is I want to present three different ways of working with or three different ways of interacting with Patanjali's eight-limbed path. So we're not going to talk about yamas and niyamas in like large nuanced detail. I, I think that our listeners probably have the basic concept, but more so I want us to reflect on different means by which we can actually use the eight limb method that he presents. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have three kind of different approaches or lenses. Yeah. Three different lenses or approaches or three different models. Okay. Right? So Patanjali presents us this worldview that is informed by Samkhya and the dualistic concepts of Purusha and Prakriti. He lays out to us what he wants to have happen, which is the cessations of the fluctuations of the mind, so that we can see the true nature of self without the cluttered misidentification of our temporary self. But he acknowledges that that's not easy and that we need a protocol, like we need a roadmap in order to, in order to enact that vision. So he provides us with the eight-limb model that I think pretty much everyone is familiar with. So we have the eight limbs just to lay them out, yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama, pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi. I feel like we could the make name this of our eight like... puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Dharana. Yeah. Um, no, okay. we would be. I hope we'd no be... one is offended by oh that. Oh my god! If you are, it's find a different podcast. <clears throat> I know. I know. I was actually just thinking as you were saying that I was going back and forth, thinking like this could be a schoolhouse <laughs> rock for modern time. We the people in. You, did you ever watch? You had Schoolhouse yeah, Rock yeah, in your yeah, yeah, yeah. in your little tiny colonial bo- abode in Toledo, yeah. Ohio, right? Toledo. <laughs> yeah, my Spanish is really good from leaving from growing up in Toledo. <laughs> so those are the limbs, but then here are the models, right? So you have the most kind of obvious, basic historical approach to those limbs, which is to perceive those limbs as a hierarchy, to see those limbs essentially as what I call a step-by-step process. Right, like the step, the rungs of the ladder. The rungs of the ladder. That's the easiest way to think of them is, is a straightforward hierarchical process whereby you begin with the bottom and you proceed through the top. And there is a lot of reasonable and logical rationale for perceiving it this way. Now, before I go on and kind of build out this analysis, I want to make it really clear that even in the very early commentaries, there are different early commentarians on Patanjali that see Patanjali's method as... Some people see it as a very specific linear model in which you have to be proficient in one before moving to the next, meaning you have to have completely enacted the yamas before moving to the niyamas. You have to completely enact the niyamas before moving to the asanas and so forth. But there are also early commentarians that that don't agree with that. So 
as we move forward and we talk about these concepts, I am at no point saying Patanjali believed you needed to go through it X, Y, or Z. No one knows that. Even the early commentarians had disagreements about this. So I think these are just interesting points of reflection, right? But this first one is this idea that we move through in a hierarchical process. And this makes sense, right? And one of the reasons it makes sense is if you take a, a kind of bird's eye view, of like a real macro view of yama to samadhi, you see it's a movement from the gross to the subtle. You and I talk a lot about self-regulation, right? And it's easier to regulate obvious things right. than it is to regulate subtle things. Yes. Right? Like, it's easier to fold your clothes than enact psycho-emotional transformation. <laughs> right, 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 right. Arguably, there's a different model where those are actually integrated processes. Okay. Right? But the point on this is, like, when you look at Yama all the way to Samadhi, you are looking at relatively gross demands and refinements and regulations to profoundly subtle. And so a, a pretty argument can be made saying, look, we have to know how to regulate our posture before we can regulate our breath because our breath is more subtle than our posture. And if you don't have the skill to make the physical body still, steady, and quiet, then you're probably not going to have the skill to make the breath still, subtle, and quiet. And if you can't make your breath still and subtle and quiet, how do you pretend to mitigate your sensory interaction with the world around you? Like, how are you going to withdraw your attachment of the senses if you can't sit still? Mm -hmm. If you can't sit still and you can't regulate your breath and you can't also regulate the way in which your senses are interacting with the world around you, how are you going to fully focus and concentrate your mind? How are you going to get to dharana and dhyana, right? And so I don't think that we have to see the step-by-step -step linear model as being necessarily ethical-based, it's practically based, Yes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like sandpaper. Like you use coarse sandpaper before you use fine sandpaper and you use fine sandpaper before you use even finer sandpaper and so on. Mm -hmm. And so- It just does get easier. I mean, the longer you practice, the easier the access to the more subtle techniques become. Totally. Right. However, I'm so interested to hear your integrated model because well, because I think so that that's, that's where we're gonna perfect. that's where we're gonna spend time. Yeah. Okay. So that's the other thing is like okay, look. So going even earlier to yamas, right? Starting with ahimsa, the, this whole kind of process that Patanjali lays out begins. I mean, it doesn't begin with yamas. It begins with two and a half books full of metaphysics. So there's a, there's a lot of establishing complicated psychoenergetic parameters. But once we get to the game, 
You know what I mean? Like once we get to the method, we start with ahimsa. And it seems sensible that this is the broadest body of regulation that we enact before we start to fuss around with other things. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't have the capacity to be nonviolent or to interrupt or to cease or mitigate our violence, then how are we going to sit still? If we don't have the capacity to be non-hoarding, to be non-stealing, to be non-grasping, how are you going to sit still? So to me, not just to me, but like when we think about it as a process of going from the gross to the subtle and skill development, you know what I mean? Like thinking of kind of like a modern lens. It's like, oh, this is a skill development of self-regulation from the gross to the subtle. It makes sense to see it as this linear and hierarchical process, mm-hmm. right? Another thing that makes sense, arguably, is to have the two foundational elements of basic regulation in terms of our relationship to others and our personal practices, yama and niyama, it makes sense to have those as a foundation that are pretty well developed before you start to move on to the other landscape, right? So in this sense, this is a way that you can use this model. I would say that this model also appeals to kind of a a linear, not that the other ones are irrational, but this model of going up the ladder is going to appeal to people who like lists and to like to do things in order Mm -hmm. and to like to have their map relatively clearly spelled out, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of structure. It's like Google Maps, right? It's kind of like, Turn right here, go straight here, turn right here, go straight here. So this appeals to my Virgo brain, Mm -hmm. and it is very sensible. It's the way that Patanjali's work is usually talked about, and for most people, it's totally impractical. And the reason that it's totally impractical is it's not really within the scope of most modern minds. For most modern minds, we can now go to this second model that I think of, which is Patanjali's integrated module. So in the first one, what I want everyone to do, the step-by-step model or the linear model, I want you to think about it, like you said, as rungs on a ladder. Mm -hmm. Yama's the first rung, Samadhi's the eighth rung, now, the integrated Patanjali model. The rung, like, disintegrates as you get. There's no rung. The yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and then you're like, wait this, wait a second. <laughs> there is no rung. There's, like, multiple, multiple stages of samadhi? <laughs> All right, that's right. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yo, yo, yeah. It's yeah. it's whole subsection yeah. body of work. Yeah. That's yeah. super fascinating, super esoteric. Yeah, it can keep a mind busy for a long period of time. But so now what I want everyone to imagine is a different model. And I am not the person to invent this. I don't know. I mean, I've just heard, I've heard not a single source, but I've heard of this concept before. And this is how I think about the integrated Patanjali model, which is to think about it more like a wheel with spokes, Mm -hmm. 
right? Mm -hmm. So a wheel with spokes. So the integrated Patanjali model is this name by which in any given stage, whether it's pranayama, asana, pratyahara, you are practicing and you are informed by other stages. Okay, that this is the, this is the simplest way to start to think about this. Where do most contemporary practitioners enter their yoga journey? Asana. Asana, mm -hmm. right? So most people in contemporary practice are going to enter the Patanjali worlds in a teacher training because they started practicing yoga at a facility, a studio, and they were drawn in to asana. Mm -hmm. And asana is the third floor, right? So if you think about it in terms of like the limbs, you've already skipped the first two limbs, right? right? You come into it from the third floor. But does that mean that you can't go backwards and from your asana practice be exposed mm -hmm to yamas and niyamas and pranayama, right? So the access point that most contemporary practitioners experience Patanjali is asana and pranayama. Yeah, right? I mean, that's the thing. So asana and pranayama, like right. those tend to be, and, and it makes sense, right? Because those are very, not only are those culturally popular and not only are those mentally, emotionally, and physically accessible and valuable, but those are pretty tactile. Right, right. Right? Like an asana practice and a pranayama practice, even if it's just ujjayi breath and a flow class, right? That's still exposing you to a broader body of work. And so we have to accept that the vast majority of contemporary practitioners are going to enter on the third and fourth floor and they're going to get exposed down the way over time to the concepts of yamas and niyamas and some of the other elements as they proceed. Yes. I mean, my, if memory serves, BKS Iyengar was known for being pretty strict about uh, when people did standalone pranayama practices and made it very clear that you had to have a certain level of asana practice to sort of, quote unquote, progress on to doing these standalone pranayama practices. And I think, you know, clearly... There's good reason for that. that sure. If you're doing a really intense, consistent, certain type of pranayama practice, it can be, you have to have a very strong foundation, especially in your nervous system. However, I think for years that has made people afraid of pranayama. I, I've, I've witnessed it so many times. People feeling like, can I teach, you know, five minutes of Nadi Shodana at the beginning of my class? Is that sure. okay? And the answer is, of course, yes, it's okay. That wasn't really what he was talking about, right? Right. But if we're if we're going to strictly interpret Patanjali's model as the rungs and you gotta get your you gotta get your asana all set before you move to your pranayama, then 
you're not doing that. And and like you said, I mean, ujjayi is a form of pranayama. It's a breathing technique. Big time. It's an important one and a really, really um, therapeutic, in my feeling, it's a very therapeutic one. And it's okay for people to do it right away when they first start practicing. So that is, like you said, a really clear example. As you were talking about the rungs, you know I'm reading this book called Self-Reg right now by Stuart Shankar. He's a psychologist. And it's really a book that's mostly focused on how children self-regulate. Children who have difficulties with behavior really actually have difficulties with regulation. And let's face it, so many adults have difficulties with regulation as well. And he talks about the different uh, components of the mind-body, and they're always overlapping for him. And so as you were talking about it, I was thinking about how for some people, asana, you know, is a great doorway in and, and movement and breathing comes really naturally to them. But for some people, physical exercise and movement is, is really challenging. And pratyahara might be an easier practice for that. It's just, it's interesting to think about, we assume that going up, like it's harder, 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 but not everybody is that same model. Not right. everybody is like that. Right. And we also see there are millions of people that meditate that don't have an active asana Right. Practice, right. Yeah. Yeah. But also Patanjali wasn't really talking about asana or pranayama like BKS Anger was talking about asana or pranayama. Like the way that we That's have true. built That's out true. asana and pranayama as right. subfields in and of themselves right. is probably beyond, not be, probably beyond, is infinitely beyond Patanjali's original intention. But the concept is still correct, right? So let's keep building on this idea, which is if you come in via asana, if you come in via breath work, if you come in via meditation, you're not going to stop there. And the reason you're not going to stop there is because all of the dimensions of your humanness are fundamentally and inextricably related to one another. So when you come in and you go to a yoga practice, let's just kind of think about it. Let's, let, we'll stay in like contemporary world, right? You come into a yoga practice, you're going to do asana. When you do asana, in most situations, you're going to do some style of breath while you are doing that. While you are doing that style of breath, you are inevitably aware of the sensory input from around you, but you're doing your best to not kind of chase those senses down. I remember actually, just as a quick aside, when I used to study with Rodney in the original Piedmont Yoga Studio, I've told the story before, but it was in this like little raised courtyard and it was directly across. It was like the windows would always be open and the windows were maybe 15 feet away from the kitchen of a French restaurant. And at about 20 minutes into class, you would just start to smell food cooking. You'd start to smell butter and shallots frying. Oh, wow. And you'd have to deal with that. You know what I mean? And so that was always like this obvious pratyahara practice of like, okay, it's there. <laughs> but regardless, when you're doing asana, when you're doing pranayama, when you're tuning to what's happening as it's happening, 
that's also the product, the process of dharana, of meditation, of focusing the lens of the mind to what's happening in the present moment. At some point when we're doing our yoga practice, there is some fundamental absorption into what we're doing. So this, this little taste, there's this little moment of dhyana. That may be also this complete feeling of encapsulated humanness and joy, samadhi. That then may be what makes you interested in the amas. Mm -hmm. That then may be what makes you, that takes away the impulse to be violent, mm -hmm. that takes away the insecurities that make you want to hoard that take away the insecurities that make you want to lie or cheat or steal, mm -hmm. right? Or give it, you the regulation to be able to practice saucha, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that then gives you the regulations for maybe saucha, maybe brahmacharya, depending on like what your mm -hmm. life is like at any given time, right? So then as the experience that came from that asana practice – I mean, you may have gone through this whole loop in t a ten minute, ten minutes in a class, and you have maybe in that process some self realization of, man, I, I need to work on not overreacting. I need to work on kind of owning my relationship or my anger issues or whatever it is, and then that continues its loop or it continues its circle, and that feeds the asana practice again. Because when the asana practice touches on all of the aspects of your humanness, it sticks. You know? Mm -hmm. When your asana practice, when the physicality of your asana practice touches on the other dimensions of who you are, you are much more likely to maintain the asana practice because you experience the poignancy of the practice itself. So it becomes this, this possibility of this cyclical virtual cycle, virtuous cycle, mm -hmm. right? Okay, I know we're not supposed to vote, but I mean, I'm going to say that that category B is already the one I like the most. I like category C the most. Okay. Category C is almost the same as category B. So the next model is almost the same. Okay. But it's a little bit different. But the point is, is like, or in your asana practice, right? In the asana practice you have the moment where you realize your negative self-talk or you realize like you've been lying to someone else or to, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's, like there's you've been this, misrepresenting yourself. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or you have been really miserable at work or you've been really miserable living where you live or in the relationship you're in or whatever it is. It's like that asana practice is often – a catalyst for other things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why it's such an unbelievably powerful thing. It's also one of the reasons I get so annoyed when people are like, well, yoga is not just physical. It's like, right. Mm -hmm. Got that memo a long time ago, but it is actually also physical. Mm -hmm. And the physicality of it is part of the impact of it. Mm -hmm. Because we are also physical. Mm -hmm. And so doing physical things 
inherently influences the other dimensions of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like you, you would actually have to not believe in yoga to believe that you could just do physical yoga. Do you know what I mean? Right, right, Because right. all the dimensions of the self are so inextricably related and they're so inextricably tied together that if you move any one component of self, you affect all the other components of self. Mm-hmm. So there's no such thing as just physical yoga because if you're doing something that impacts an integrated self, then it has a ripple effect on all the other dimensions. So the only question is, is the door you're walking through more overtly physical or not? Yeah. Is the impulse more physical or not? So anyways, I don't want to kind of go too far down that road. But I think this is a situation, right, where the asana practice is the catalyst for so many other dimensions of the practice because the practice is an integrated process and because we are integrated fields of being. So if we're doing an integrated practice and we're an integrated field of being, then you can step in, you can step into this circle or this integrated wheel and spoke system at any point, mm-hmm. And these things are going to churn and affect each other. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Now I'm dying to know what the third one is. Category C. Okay. So category C, I call the single limb module model. or model. Yeah. The single limb module, the single <laughs> limb model. You know what? Can we take a really quick aside? I don't like naming things at all. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's my I, least favorite part of being an editor. That's what I was going to say. I remember you talking about having to do cover lines oh, and title stores. Like, it's really hard. And it's really hard for me not to be like weird and academic. It's because you and I are just very literal people. We're not like fanciful, fantastical beings. I'm a fanciful, fantastical full of, being. <laughs> full light of. and glitter. Speak <laughs> <laughs> for yourself. I know. It's true. But I mean, I do think that there were people. That's what I actually am, trapped inside. <laughs> Trapped inside a culturally Midwestern man. Oh, God. <laughs> no, I am not. I don't want to unpack that right no, now. No, you don't. I'm not at all, by the way. <laughs> this morning on Glow, I taught a – I don't know if you were here when I – no, I think you left. So it was a 45-minute energy boost flow. And I was like, man, I haven't had energy for the last 10 years. You I don't know – I said, I haven't had any energy for the last 10 years. I don't know how I'm going to create it in 45 minutes. <laughs> You're like, how did I get picked for this one? Yeah, exactly. Not it. Did I not have editorial oversight over my content anymore? No, you know what happens is I teach so many classes now. When I get the, when I get the like selections, I'm just like, yeah, I got it. I'll teach whatever. No, it wouldn't. And then, but then I, I'm, but I'm pretty good at rationalizing. So I think it was a good class. I'm sure. Look at Ginger right now. <laughs> so I think it was a good class. And it was, you know what it was like? Pretty much all of my other classes. Just fantastic. I don't Fantastical mean- and glitter-filled. Okay. So now, here we go. Model three. Single limb model. So this is where you think about any one limb. And it is informed and it informs the other limbs. Okay. So let's think about this. So that other model 
it was like uh it was a circle. Yes. Right? It where where things had this Are we gonna per- put this on the website? We can. Yeah. Okay. Things had this perpetual continuity to them. Okay. Right? Now this one's a little different because you can kind of place any one limb at the center. Okay. So we'll, let's do it with a couple of different limbs, but okay. let's start with asana. Okay. Okay. So imagine you have asana in the center mm-hmm. and then you have the seven other limbs surrounding it. Okay. And each limb informs asana. Interesting. Each limb informs the way you do asana. Hmm. I'm liking this. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Each <laughs> limb. I like myself. <laughs> informs the way you do asana. And your asana is an opportunity to practice that limb. So it, yeah. it goes both ways, I like right? That. So, and, and here, this is kind of one that, you know, like pretty frequently, I think, like asana, I think, is a place where this concept of what I'm speaking to is actually talked about all the time, just not as overtly as I'm speaking to it, right? right. Because think about asana as the environment, not the end goal in and of itself. The asana is the environment where you actually practice nonviolence. You actually practice truthfulness. You actually practice energy conservation and direction. You actually practice cleanliness. You actually practice self-study. So in your asana practice, you are practicing the attributes that are encompassed in the yamas and the niyamas. Also, the yamas and the niyamas are giving you information about how to do your asana practice. Mm -hmm. So we know Patanjali didn't give us much information about asana, right? The information he did give us about having the dual qualities of steadiness and firmness is pretty good. You know, like if you're going to give like one little tidbit about an asana, and saying it has the dual qualities of effort and relaxation, that's pretty mm-hmm. succinct and good. Mm-hmm. But I think all of us can step back and identify with, okay, maybe our asana should be informed by first doing no harm to ourselves. It should be informed by satya, being honest and truthful and responsive to the body that we actually have in this moment. Mm-hmm. Non hoarding. Mm-hmm. So, for example, hey, right now I'm doing a preparation for a handstand while someone else is like handstand, balance, middle of the room, and a bunch of variations. But I am not them. I don't get to do their pose. Mm-hmm. That's their body. That's mm-hmm. their experience. That's their karma. I know nothing about. I don't own that and I don't need to compete with that. So this yeah. practice like of when you get grasping in a pose. Yeah, a parigraha, asteya, mm-hmm. you know, of having this sense of yamas and niyamas are the way in which you govern how you're doing your posture. Right. There are ways that, yeah, that ways that 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 are giving you the parameters of how to conduct yourself in any given pose, Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Think about this another way, which is asana 
is also then the environment in which we're practicing pranayama, right? So asana is the place, not only that you're practicing and being informed by yamas and niyamas, but asana is the place that most of us do our breath work. Mm -hmm. And Can you flip it? Can you like talk me through a how you approach the yamas in the center or or pratyahara in the yes. center? Yes. Okay. Let's get through asana a little bit okay. more because it's just it's more it's more overt, right? It's just it's it's not more overt. They're all equally overt. This is just the easiest one. I always think in my asana practice, it's inform it's not just where I breathe, but it's informed by how I breathe. Meaning if in my asana practice I'm going really, really far and I'm working really intense, but I'm working at such a threshold that my breath is struggling. It's a a bad pose. It's not a good pose because there isn't the back and forth exchange. That's where I want us to see this is it's actually a back and forth exchange. So whatever is at the center, asana is informed by the other limbs, right? Mm -hmm. But actually, that asana informs that limb slightly. So another example, just asana at the center, and then you choose one and we'll put it at the center. Okay. Just don't choose samadhi. Because <laughs> I always feel like if I talk about samadhi, I always feel like I'm back in my, like, uh, I always feel like I'm back in philosophy grad school. Yeah. And I just want to, I just want to like, I just want to quit. I just want to stop again. I already quit it's, that it's a long not, time. It's not, it's not. It's more for you guys to talk about in training. It's for this format. That's not even something to talk about in training. It's just yoga philosophy is practical and embedded in our physicality. It's not an intellectual rumination. Mm -hmm. So anyways, point being, meditation. Okay. Dharana, right? So we think about asana, and dharana, or asana and dhyana. So dharana being the lower form of meditation in which there's still subject-object distinction. So dharana meaning the, the process of concentrating. So I am focused on this. So I always think about technique and detail and nuance in asana as the practice of dharana. It's the practice of focus. It's the practice of meticulous concentration. So technique in asana to me is not so much about the asana. Technique in asana is the opportunity to practice fully concentrating my mind. Does that sensible? Mm -hmm. Dhyana absorption, a feeling of in the asana practice, you are fully absorbed in what you're doing as you're doing it and some of the other aspects of life fall away. So that's a way in which we can kind of plug asana in the center. So now you want me to plug something else in the center. I do. So yamas then inform and are informed by all of the other limbs. Mm -hmm. So whatever you put in the center, that is informed by the other limbs and that informs the other limbs. So let's put yamas in the center. Right. Right? Yes. 
So that means that the yamas inform how you do an asana practice, how you do a breath practice, how you do a meditation practice, practice, how you have some relationship to the senses. Meaning your asana practice and your breathing practice and your pratyahara practice are all governed by Mm -hmm. the principles or they're not principles, the actual practices of the yamas. Mm -hmm. Meaning your breath work is going to be Mm -hmm. nonviolent. Your breath work is going to be Mm non-greedy. Your breath work is going to be Mm non-hoarding and so on, Mm -hmm. right? Similarly, your meditation is going to, I mean, I was going to be like, of course, meditation is not violent. But your meditation is going to be governed by you not trying to impress yourself or someone else at your unbelievable piety Mm -hmm. in how long or how deep or how profound or how abnormal or how exotic your meditations are. So when yama's at the center, or when you put niyama's at the center, right? Especially thinking about a niyama self-study, right? So when niyamas are at the center, self-study, you kind of say to yourself, oh, well, the reason I'm doing an asana practice right now is to to reflect on myself, Mm -hmm. to get to know myself. Right. And the most important thing that I can do in my asana practice right now is become more attuned to what's happening within my body and mind. Right. What I'm doing right now in my breathing practice, right? If my if my breathing practice is informed by the practice of self-study, then my breathing practice is just a way where I'm getting to know my breath pattern. Mm-hmm. I'm getting to know how do I feel when I retain my inhalation? How do I feel when I retain my exhalation? Do I inhale more easily on my left side? Do I inhale more easily on my right side? What happens to my body and mind when my breath is smooth and well integrated? What happens to my body and mind when my breath is kind of chunked up, right? Yeah. So another thing, right? It's another simple thing, self-study meditation, right? So what's guiding in this light, our meditation, it's getting to know ourselves, right? Right. So our meditation is then grounded in the process of getting to know ourselves. Or you could put another niyama in the center of all those things, ishvare pranidana. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different ways that we can cut that up, but ishvare pranidana, the practice of surrendering to something that is bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Can that inform the way we meditate? Mm -hmm. Can that inform the way that we do an asana practice? Surrendering to the reality that there are some things bigger than ourselves, can that help us stop lying and cheating and steal? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of these things have these kind of infinite interactions with each other where I think that the way humans are 
the way the mind works. I don't think the single limb model or not the single limb model. I don't think the step-by-step model where you do yama, the niyama, I just don't think it's a practical reality. Yeah. I just don't, I'm not saying it shouldn't be. Yeah. I'm saying that, look, how do, do most people learn things the easy way? Well, it's not, it's just, I would say it's actually not the easy way. It's, it's not how, it's, it's not the applied theory, right? It's the theoretical theory. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's, it's a great way to study it and learn it. But when you actually start, when you're doing the practice, I think as, as, as multifaceted beings, you just sort of naturally and automatically, hopefully, are working the different steps simultaneously. Yeah. And in different phases of your life, you're probably focusing more on certain aspects than another. That was kind of going to be the last thing that I wanted to say is all of these things take a hell of a lot of time. Mm -hmm. So whatever model you're working with, to enact or to be informed by Patanjali is a lifelong process, Mm -hmm. right? Any spiritual tradition is. And so it's these, it's not like an address too, because look, even if we we all backslide. So even if you were to be like, all right, I got all the Yama boxes ticked and I got all the Niyama boxes ticked, really? There's not gonna be a moment where right. you don't slide backwards. Right. So since these are lifelong practices, I think the most reasonable way to do this is to put all of the limbs and all of the contents of the limbs in a Vitamix and just blast it on high. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is all of this stuff just goes into the hopper of life. And the more we see just an integrated process of parallel tracking and co-development and when you're in your breath practice, you have these realizations of, oh, I'm still a little greedy, I'm still a little insecure. Like these are the perfect opportunities to to kind of take all of these dimensions and practice them together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, thank you, Jason. I don't know if I would vote for B or C now. I I like that. They're so similar. I know. It's, It's just nice to have these different, to have the different models as a way of thinking about and framing practice. So I'll put them up on the website on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 234. It's kind of fun. 234. 234. That's where we are right now. Today, we're going to talk about techniques for um, getting across essential philosophical concepts to beginners, which is so important. And I would imagine really challenging to do. This is actually what was on my mind was, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about I think there were maybe nine of the most essential asana concepts that I want to teach beginners. And I put in there the caveat that when I say I want to teach these things to beginners, they're relevant to everyone at all levels, at all times. But when I'm thinking about beginners, it's just easier for me to start at the beginning and to to kind of think like, okay, if I was going to teach someone from the ground up, these are the technical asana principles that I would like to share. This is critical. Right? Yeah. So there are also philosophical themes and concepts that from the beginning that I want 
an endeavor to teach and share. But exactly as you said, it's a lot harder. Um, and I don't think it's just harder for me. I think that it is always harder to teach more subtle, nuanced, and maybe metaphysical things than it is to teach people where to put their foot in downward-facing dog, right? So I, so all of these things that I want to share, I don't share them to our audience as if these are easy. Like, like, oh, somehow we just say these things and they're easy to communicate. Um, these are all things that... Uh, like anything I teach, they're, um, they're endeavors. These are some of the concepts that I think that we can articulate directly to our students, we can say directly to our students. Um, and, and they're things that are going to be repeated. They're going to be these repeatable themes that as teachers, we're going to come back to time and time and time again. Right. And to be honest, some of the next maybe eight concepts or themes are probably going to be easier to teach than others, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the final, final lead-in that I want to say is we don't have to teach everyone everything. Yeah. So when we ha- so I have a, a checklist of the nine this and the eight this. I, what I really encourage people to do is listen and focus on the ones that are most um, that stand out most and are most compelling to you without feeling like you just have to tick all these boxes. Huh. You know, if if I could communicate any of these things to my students, I would feel like I've done a good job. That's a win. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So how do we begin? So I think we begin with maybe the most important, maybe the most important concept, which is that Yoga philosophy is largely comprised of embodied practices. In fact, the vast majority of yoga philosophy is not a set of intellectualizations about the world, but a set of practices in this world to help us have greater clarity about the complexity and the depth of this world. So I think the bottom line is, there isn't really a separation between philosophy and practice. The philosophy is embedded into the practice. And if we just take a time and a moment, and I'll, I'll kind of come back to a couple of these things later, but if we think about the yamas and the niyamas, or if we think about almost anything that Patanjali lays out, he's laying out practices. Nonviolence isn't an intellectual construct. Satya isn't an intellectual construct. Asana, pranayama, pratihara, dharana, dhyana. These are practices. These are things that you're actually doing. And what are you doing them with? You're doing them with your body and mind. That they that there aren't really distinctions. So I think this is this is really key is that the philosophy is not some intellectualized, rarefied air. Right. It's a set of things that you enact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful, I think. And I think actually that's why uh, people are drawn to the philosophy aspect of yoga, because it's it, it's so practical. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like we can actually practice it. We don't have to um, be, uh, like you said, like a rarefied scholar. We don't have to... Um, wrap our brains around things that are too esoterically outside of our ability to conceptualize because we can actually 
start by practicing. Not to say that there isn't the esoteric in yoga. Of course, there is. There is, but like for sure. Where we start is right. very practical, and where you end is very practical, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I wrote this in a, in a little piece, which is. You don't primarily think yoga philosophy. You primarily act upon and practice yoga philosophy. I think this is really important that that we see that yoga philosophy isn't isn't primarily an academic subject to the vast majority of practitioners. Mm-hmm. It is a phenomenon. It is a phenomenally interesting academic subject that can be studied. Um, in the same way that you can study anatomy without focusing on how to actually use it. But when we're focused on learning yoga anatomy as yoga, excuse me, when we're focused on learning yoga philosophy as a yoga student, we're primarily focused on how to actually use it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I like that. The next one really leads right in, which is yoga philosophy is moksha shastra, right? Or liberation teachings. And the essence of these liberation teachings is that you are more than your limited notion of self. Not that you are not yourself, but that you are not limited Mm -hmm. to that notion of self. Mm -hmm. And if you were to think, well, who am I? And you were to start to write an essay about it, you'd probably talk about your background, your beliefs, your family, your interests, your your thoughts, your emotions. And I don't think that a can that like a well-versed contemporary perspective on the yoga tradition would deny that you are those things but it would it would articulate that you are not limited to those things and it would go a step further if we wanted to take it but that you are supreme ultra conscious beings that have no beginning and no end Right there is the belief that an intrinsic component of the self is the infinite experience of consciousness, which is difficult for anyone to unpack, let alone me to unpack it in this current moment. But yoga teachings are trying to help you understand that you are not limited to how you see yourself based on your past. It was such a relief to me to learn that concept because, you know, living only in this iteration can be pretty suffocating at times. So for me, that was like a huge um, relief. I want to ask you something which may be outside the scope of this conversation, but when you're teaching beginners this concept, do you just state it plainly? Yoga philosophy is a liberation, te- like is moksha shastra liberation teaching? Or- I think the easiest way to do it is to be very practical, which is to help people understand that they will learn and grow. And even within the physical practice of yoga, they are students are likely to be able to do much more in the future than they're currently able to do now, hmm. which is a very material take on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I think if we want to understand that that we are more than our limited notions of self, we start by actually making incremental steps towards that realization. Like, I realized at some point in my yoga practice that I would actually be able to 
take my fingertips and touch the floor. I learned in my yoga practice that I would be able to do a certain backbend I never thought I would be able to do. I mean, again, it's a very material thing, but one of the funny things about the human condition is we almost always believe our thoughts to be true, even when they're wrong. Yeah. And the way we think about ourselves is often inaccurate, right? I mean, it's it's usually inaccurate in, in that it doesn't represent the totality of, sure. of who we are and what we can be. It can be really myopic. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that when we start to realize, oh, this thing I thought about myself is not true. Oh, this thing I thought about myself is actually just a self-limiting belief. Oh, this thing I thought about myself uh, is completely misguided and misplaced. And I don't know where this came from, but actually I can do this. And actually I don't need to do that. I am, you know, so I think that when we, when we have those little moments, those little small moments of self-realization, that is how we begin to have a, a larger, a larger, more comprehensive sure. realization. We can start to trust the concept. We can trust it's the proof con- of concept, actually. Yeah, it's proof of concept, and it's also proof that, oh, my mind is probably going to continue to do this to me. Right. It's probably going to continue, oh, well, now I can touch my, t- my fingertips to the floor, but I'll never get my palms to the floor. Or... Even the self-limiting, like a a belief that's not just about improvement and gain. So, for example, like, oh, now I can do this deeper backbend, but that actually doesn't mean my relationships are better or worse. Like, because we do this a lot to ourselves, too, which is we think, like, if I do X, then I'll get Y. And in this yoga practice, we start to realize I think a lot of the games that the mind is playing with itself, and hopefully we start to see through those and become a little bit more, um, a little bit less of a prisoner of of our self-limiting beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. I think the next one is not something, I, I struggle with whether or not to put this in the list. And I think it's the more academic part of me that wanted to put this in the le- the list and less the practical part of me that wanted to put this in the list. Because in reality, I want teachers to hear this and know this, but I don't think that this is something that overtly you're going to communicate to your beginners because I think it's just, I don't know a scenario where it's going to come up and I don't think it's that practical. Uh, but the point is that yoga philosophy is not homogenous. I think this is really important we understand a few things, that um, yoga philosophy and the yoga tradition is comprised of countless different subgroups and subgenres. Yoga philosophy and yoga culture is profoundly heterogeneous. It's been influenced by many different things over the millennia. And not only is yoga philosophy not homogenous, but there are incredibly varied and often conflicting belief systems mm-hmm. that exist within the yoga tradition. Yeah. And as part of this, the Yoga Sutra attributed to Patanjali is definitely not the totality of the yoga tradition. Yeah, or another way of saying this is yoga philosophy and Patanjali are not 
synonyms. No. They're not even close to being synonyms. No. Now, that shouldn't take away from the poignancy and the power and the influence of the Yoga Sutra. But I think it's just really important that we don't that we don't just kind of casually equate yoga philosophy equals Patanjali, Patanjali equals yoga philosophy, end of day. Yeah. And this person and the way they interpret it is the is the final statement. Yeah. Right? I, I just I and the reason I think this is important is I at every bone in my body pushes back against fundamentalism and singular truths, especially when there is a historical record of incredible heterogeny. Yeah. And so I, I just want people to be sensitive to the reality that this is a, a beautiful and complex mosaic and in a way to kind of steer away from teachers or suggestions that it is not. I want to add to that, and I, I I know you agree with this. Stephanie Simon's book, I will find the name of the book. The, the title is escaping me right now. I'll put it on the show notes page. Her last name is spelled S-Y-M-A-N. Stephanie Simon's book and Andrea Jane's book, the first her first book about yoga. Selling yoga. Selling yoga. Thanks. I'm like, oh my God, that's escaping me too. Both, uh, you know, go into uh, the historical evolution of yoga and and basically kind of the globalization of it. And um, so the history of it, but the more recent history, so I want to say like last hundred years, and both of them point out very adeptly that the infighting between different yoga groups has always existed as well. And I I think that's important to say because it's like we can get very hung. I just see so much so many hangups right now about like, we must teach people that yoga is not just asana. We must deconstruct this narrative. We must do this. We must do that. And that's all well and good. Like you, if you are, have a conviction about yoga that you feel it's important to teach, go for it. But like you said, the, the idea that one person slash system slash idea is fundamentally right over the other this kind of fighting has has existed since yoga has existed what we can see is a history of um across the human spectrum of people having strong opinions yeah um, and identifying strongly with those opinions and projecting those opinions as if they are a singular truth. And I just want to say for the record, I think this is just, I'm just going to put it out there. But in my opinion, like, I do not criticize people who go to yoga, quote unquote, only for the physical, only for asana. Like, that's where they are right now. That might be where they are in this lifetime. That is okay. It's not up to me to make that decision for other people, how they integrate the practices in their life. It's, that's not, that, that, that's just all I'm going to say about that. I would go so far, or I'm going to be brief about this, or we can really sidetrack this. I would go so far as to say is if one thinks you could only do, only go to yoga for the physicality of it, you'd actually have to not believe in the teachings of yoga. And you have to not believe in the nervous system. Yeah. 
these these things are these things are so fundamentally entwined. So I agree. The what we identify as the what we identify as the reason we are doing a thing is usually just going to be like the surface motivating factor. But by doing that thing, you are affecting everything. Yep. So if your motivation is to go to yoga to be more flexible or stronger or because you need a social network, that's fine. That's like that's a motivation. That's legit motivation. But by doing that thing, you are inherently affecting the totality of you. Yeah. And if and if one did not believe that, you'd you'd actually have to not believe into the underlying teachings of yoga. The next, which actually is super interesting to me, which is that practicing yoga does not deny or exclude other belief systems. So let's take a moment and let's go back to Patanjali for a moment, right? And kind of mention Patanjali again. And I said a moment ago, Patanjali does not represent the totality of the yoga tradition or yoga philosophy. But let's, let's look at him for a moment. As an example, it is very clear in his usage. I shouldn't say it's very clear. Um, it, it is plausible. Actually, it's pretty clear. In his usage of Ishvara, right? As he writes about Ishvara Pranadana, surrender. That Ishvara can represent different things. But Ishvara can also most commonly represent a non-denominational um, godhead. And you can put whatever face you want on that godhead. So if you are a devotee of Vishnu, if you are a Vishnuvite, then that encouragement of Ishvara Pranadana is a surrender to Vishnu. If you are a Shaivite, right, if you are dedicated to Shiva, then the representation, the, then the figurehead that you would put in place of, of Ishvara is Shiva, mm-hmm. in which case all those teachings still apply and the that which you are surrendering to is Shiva. It seems pretty clear that Patanjali is saying, bring your faith along, He's not saying this and and this is a an and set your faith aside and now follow me. Hmm. It seems pretty clear that he is he is speaking directly to put it in a modern way to to members of multiple parties and saying bring your party with you. Hmm. These teachings are they transcend or they don't transcend. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But these these teachings and these practices are inclusive, not exclusive, of your existing belief system. Mm -hmm. Now, all of that being said, not all faiths and religions and belief systems uh, feel the same way, Mm -hmm. right? Right, right. It's not not reciprocal. It's not always reciprocal, right? right? right. And and there's definitely many examples of that, right? But... In terms of the yoga tradition, and I, th- I think one of the many reasons, one of the many reasons that it is in a modern setting so accessible to people with different religious and philosophical backgrounds is because 
many of the teachings of the yoga tradition can be applied to believers of a certain faith without negating the underlying teachings of that faith. Right. And also some of us that are without a faith. Mm-hmm. Right? So the yoga teaching the yoga philosophy also appeals very well in parts because it doesn't demand a specific godhead. Um, and so for people who are not theistic and for people that don't have other faiths or religious traditions that they resonate with, the yoga philosophical systems can offer a sense of spiritual depth and guidance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely been the case for me. Yeah. All right. And then, so for the next one, this is something that is so helpful. Like I said earlier, these are all have been helpful for me, is you are not your thoughts or your feelings. Yes. <laughs> so this kind of takes us back, and, and I think we, we're now entering the phase of things that I think are more overtly easy to teach, right? Like a lot of those things that we've talked about, in, in a way, those are the preconditions. Like I think those are the things as teachers that we want to have some clarity around. And then now we're starting to get a little bit more into, hey, these are kind of some of the takeaways. Like these are maybe some of the things we we very overtly share. And this 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 process of understanding that you are not your thoughts or your feelings, let's start with A, that doesn't mean we are denying the impact or the importance or the validity of your thoughts and feelings. But what these traditions teach us is that the thoughts and the feelings are transient experiences produced essentially by our experience of consciousness and our biochemistry. And a way to easily think about this is the television is not what's on the television. The iPhone is not the app that's on the phone. You aren't the feeling. You are that which feels the feeling. You aren't the thought. You are that which experiences the thought. So you are much more macro, right? You are this like macro... Witness. Witness. Mm-hmm. This macro organism that is the witness to those transient phenomena. Mm-hmm. So you are always there and you are always witnessing the impermanence of the thought and the feeling and often, unfortunately, identifying mm-hmm. as the thought or the feeling. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's, that's, that's the important key here is that we tend, and a simple way of thinking about this, we tend to be prisoners of the moment. You know, as a species, we tend to, when we have a strong feeling, feel like this is what I am. This is who I am. Everyone in the world caused this. I caused this. The universe led to this moment. I am this. And it always is this. And it's sad, but it's also like a laughable mistake because it's because the sensory experience of thought and feeling is profoundly um, transient and you aren't the passing of the feeling. You are the conscious being that experiences it. Right. This is key. It's the mystery of consciousness. Yes. Which is like you could spend your whole lifetime thinking about it, unraveling it, going around. It's it's huge. And it's 
I don't know. It's it's like a very beautiful part of the practice. And consciousness is still a an unbelievably not understood phenomenon. Yeah. Right? I mean, you have some of the most amazing mathematicians and neuroscience and neuropsychiatrists still trying to sort through these fundamental questions of whether or not um, consciousness is like gravity, a, a an existential phenomenon that exists without us, mm-hmm. or whether or not it emerges from the complex neural networks that we have. Regardless, regardless, you aren't you aren't the the wave of thought or wave of feeling. You are the bigger meta being that that experiences it. Well, it's pretty fascinating that like if you a friend of mine lost her dad this year and he was able to pass away at home and he was just like this larger than life character. He was such a character. And she said like the moment you know, he was very ill obviously. So there were parts of him that were shutting down, but he was still him until the moment when the consciousness left his mm, body. Mm. And then he was not him anymore. Right. That's... It's amazing. Yeah. The next one, again, these are these are things that we just say and we remind, and we also create an environment that is is reflective of the quality and the attribute, which is to practice being compassionate with yourself. And I... I don't like I anytime I hear this or I'm the one that just said this there's also a part of me that like like a a, a red light goes off like sure. a a spinning red light okay because I have ingrained within me this idea of high standards and not being too soft but what I kind of mean by this is what we being compassionate with ourselves doesn't mean we don't have high standards it doesn't mean we don't hold ourselves accountable it doesn't mean we don't challenge ourselves to be responsible and to grow and thrive and do all of what we need to do. It means to me, fundamentally, that no one is flawless. The human condition is really complicated and really weird. Everyone makes a lot of mistakes. And everyone, deep down, has some stuff that's kind of weird and contradictory. Mm-hmm. I would not trust anyone that isn't because I, I would just say it's buried deeper. And with all of that being said, I actually think that being compassionate with yourself is a very strategic, tactical, and necessary thing because I don't think you'll look at yourself honestly if you aren't. I don't think that people, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that people can really work to pull back the blinds and see what's happening on the inside if if they don't practice self-compassion, I don't think people will look. It's to be, it would be too shameful. It would be way too shameful. Yep. Way too shameful. Mm-hmm. Right? And I and this isn't to say like I think we all have like these deep dark secrets to hide. No. It's to say, man, life is weird. Human condition is weird. It's complicated. I I just there's there's man, there's dust, there's dirt in the corners and you're not going to look mm-hmm. if you if when you see 
what's in there sometimes, you're crippled by the shame. Mm-hmm, you'll mm-hmm. stop looking, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's one or the other. You'll turn you turn and, and look away, mm-hmm. or you'll have some amount of compassion and be able to investigate yourself more deeply by inquiring. And just like I think I think I agree with you. Like I talk about compassion a lot. I talk about self compassion a lot, and even I feel like it's. It sounds squishy. It's I always wonder, am I losing my male students, my male, my male listeners? Because it is not really a virtue um in I don't know, male culture. But it I think that just tacking onto what you're saying, it requires a lot of humility to be compassionate yeah. with yourself and with others. Even if you just think about like moving through your day. And how irritated we can get with other people in a line, let's say, like at the UPS or all of these little things. This is something that with kids, because they don't have a lot of humility, they're they're often not naturally compassionate. So you notice like our daughter, if someone does something annoying, she flashes out, right? And it's life, some of it is life experience. Some of it is being, you know, is really understanding, like you said, that none of us is perfect. And we're all doing our best. So take a deep breath and just try to be a bit more empathic from moment to moment. Yeah. And this ties into the next, okay? Uh, Which is to practice nonviolence with your body and mind. Again, I I think the first thing to clarify is when I think about nonviolence as a person in this world, or, or more specifically as a student of yoga, um, I don't just think about it as avoiding injuries. I really don't. Um, I think about it as taking overtly taking care of this being inside and out. And and when it comes to to like really taking care of this being, that also doesn't mean like I just lay in the corner and put a thousand bolsters on me. It means that. I want to nurture myself, but I also want to challenge myself. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, it, it, there is no doubt that a component of nonviolence is challenging our our body and mind to grow and to adapt. What could be more n- more violent than not developing the ability to adapt and respond to the physical, mental, and emotional challenges that are there? Right. So I don't want us to think about nonviolence as as a passive process of avoiding things. I think that's I think that is um not in understanding with the complexity of a living organism. We're a living organism. We have to challenge and grow and adapt. And we have to rest. And we have to be quiet. And we have to let go and surrender. But a component of being nonviolent, too, is managing to our best eliminating, or at very least understanding, negative Mm self-talk. It's watching that movie inside of our head, that inner narrator, right? And it's saying, no, you don't get to talk like this. Like, if your inner narrator was actually talking out loud to someone else, it would almost never be okay, Right? Yeah. It just wouldn't. Um, you'd, you'd like inner narrator would be canceled nonstop. All of ours would be. 
right? <laughs> You're canceled. Yeah. You so good. Time? So then good. This then then let's cancel it. Yeah. Let's actually stop it. Let's be like yeah. enough. Right. Or I'll, I'll say to like my inner monologue all the time of like not now. <laughs> no, not we're not doing this again. Yeah. We're not doing this again. So it's also developing greater self-esteem and greater self-acceptance. So again, this is where I would say is like that movement towards internal nonviolence isn't just avoid, 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 pad all the walls and try to have a benign existence. Living systems don't grow under those conditions, right? Right? They don't. So what? So then, what active measures mm-hmm. are we going to take for our mind to be nonviolent? Which, in, at least in some ways, is to take radical self responsibility to to see how how our mind is involved in its own narrative and to be kind but also to hold it responsible for growth it's yeah. really important that we hold ourselves responsible for growth good one um this is just i'm i'm holding my tongue because we're going to do another podcast and what you basically talked about we'll, i will expand on in our in another podcast all right well we're almost done yeah. last two okay um Practice being truthful with yourself. And here's here's the example. Here's like the little example that I'm going to give. And I feel like I've given this example under different circumstances plenty of times. I had no idea before yoga how emotionally reactionary and stubborn I was. I had no idea how quick to frustration and irritation and like, defense I was. Hmm. Um, I had no idea how kind of like quickly I would recoil at uh, something that was difficult for me in a way that was frustrating to me. But I saw all that pretty much in my first week of yoga. And that, and I was really honest with myself. I was like, whoa, these, like you have these very strong tendencies when you're not doing well in a situation, to maybe overreact. Um, I also have seen plenty of things as a yoga teacher and as a yoga student, I'm actually really good at, right? So so being honest with yourself, like, I don't know that we can see ourselves objectively. I don't think we can. But as objectively as you can, notice the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions. Notice the ego. Notice the stuff that plays out when you're on the mat mm-hmm. and just be honest with it just practice witnessing practice seeing yourself mm-hmm. i'm impressed that you stayed with it if you noticed that so quickly it took me a lot longer to unravel all my weird flaws <laughs> i was just so have you unraveled all of them no but i'm just saying like i wasn't as my first few weeks of yoga i was still in the like oh i'm good at this i feel good in my body therefore this is good for me yeah no this is this is polar opposite for right, me right It'd be like if I dragged you along, I was like, here's some ice skates and this is a hockey stick. <laughs> no, it would be like, here's a volleyball net and a volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't talked about my volleyball version in a long time. It hasn't come up in a, at least a, <laughs> a two or three years. podcasts. <laughs> All right, right. Last one. The last one is practice effort and surrender. I say this at the be- at like pretty much, I shouldn't say the end of every class. I would say at least 20% of classes that I teach towards the end of class, whether it's Shavasana or meditation, 
I'll remind people like anything that you feel you did a good job of and went well today, let it go. Anything that you feel frustrated with, irritated with, didn't do well at today, let it go. You did your best in the moment. And I I think this is so integral. I think this single thing is what intrigued me intellectually and emotionally about yoga pretty early on. This idea of, yes, you you are actually supposed to show up and be consistent time and time again and do not make excuses, do the work, period. Show up and then let go. Mm. Both. Not one or the other, right? Not show up and everything that goes well, like hold on to it forever and everything that doesn't go well, like hold on to it forever or, oh, you're having a rough day, don't show up. Nope, show up time and time again, be consistent, be persistent, do the work, period, and then let go. And time and time and time again, do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and this is this is in so many ways the keys to long-term development in anything and everything. Show up, do your best, period, then let go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. And this is overtly baked into the Bhagavad Gita. Too. I was just thinking. Yeah, like, I mean, this is as overt- you know, right, right. Yeah, this, this is, is overtly baked in. I, I think that's the last, maybe the last thing that I'll, that I will reference is, in this conversation, I didn't make a ton of references to, you know, this is what Arjuna said, this is what Krishna said, this is what Patanjali said, this is what um, Shankara said. Um, I think the final little bit is when we're teaching, in my experience, I receive teachings best that come through the experience of my teacher more so than these are kind of like the third party players. Like quoting, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's for me personally. Yeah. And I think that, I think for the listeners out there figuring out like how to, how to introduce some of this stuff. Well, for some of you, you might just, it might be more in your character and you might feel more comfortable doing a reading, an overt reading of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, Patanjali, maybe even moving outside of the yoga tradition into Buddha Dharma and so forth. I think that's still reasonable and appropriate. Or maybe you tell a story, or maybe you read a poem, or you just kind of say it through your words. Hey, listen, if that arm balance you just did was the most amazing thing in your life, take it in and let it go because it's over. Mm -hmm. If that arm balance made you feel really frustrated and irritated with yourself and incompetent because you couldn't do it, take that feeling and let go of it because it's over. Mm. So I, I think it's it's up to the experience of the educator as to how to convey this content. And I think that if you do it in a in a genuine and sincere way, I, I think that it's gonna I think that it'll come through. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. I have to think about like, if I keep having you on this much, do I have to say like, welcome to Yogaland with Jason Crandall and Andrea Ferretti? Nope. Okay. Nope. All right. That was the right answer. You still get the the byline. Okie dokie. 
All right, everyone, I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 287. Thanks so much for listening. And for those of you who signed up for beginners, we're excited to start with you. And if you'd like to get more information about the program, I've got a whole page of info and breaking it down, the curriculum, the dates, all that jazz at learn.jasonyoga.com slash beginners. And if you enjoy the podcast, it is always much appreciated if you could leave a rating and a review that just helps more people find the work that we're doing. All right, everyone, until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.